0: One two three, testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight, I am very excited to have on the show with me Dr. David Bakavoy David, how are you doing? I am so well, R.F.M. Thank you so much for hosting, and I am thrilled to spend the morning with you. This is awesome. Well, thank you so much. By the way, I just want to let our listeners know how this came to be. A couple, maybe three weeks ago now, you had reached out to me by way of private message on Facebook and suggested that we do an interview specifically related to the documentary hypothesis as it relates to the book of Abraham. Now, what on earth prompted you to reach (laughs) out to me to do this interview? (laughs) This is great. I, you know,
1: I, uh, it's a great question because um, I used to do... um, I used to blog regularly and uh, was involved with a number of different podcasts. And I have not done anything along those lines for quite a while. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess it was first listening to the, um, the the podcast that she did with Brian Hoglid on the Book of Abraham. And then I spent, well, all 15 hours or whatever the total amount ended up being with Dr. Rittner listening to his podcast. And it just... I, I just I just caught on fire again with my passion and interest for this subject. So um, honestly, to um, you did such a fantastic job with all of that and and got there was such a wonderful dialogue that was taking place as a result of it. I thought, would well, it be fun to jump in and, and share how my background in terms of biblical studies pertains and relates to this topic that you've been addressing.
0: Well, it was a thrill for me to have you reach out to me because although we have never communicated directly or indirectly before, well, I suppose maybe we did on a message board a number of years ago when I was under the name Consigliere and you were under the name Enuma Elish. <laughs> yep, this is
1: true. We have a, we actually do have a long history in that sense. We both were um, active apologists on the old fair um, board, even before it was fair Mormon, right? Just the old fair boards. Um defending the faith and having conversations with critics. And, but well, that was, uh, that was right at the beginning of everything.
0: And when you say at the beginning of everything, what do you mean? Ah,
1: you know, I mean the beginning of everything in terms of, of the way that, um, that Mormonism would fundally, fundamentally change because of the information accessibility provided by the internet through, through podcasts that, you know, John DeLynn was just getting Mormon stories up and running. I remember him going on the fair board, right? When he was starting the podcast and asking for apologists to come on and his show and, and discuss um, their belief in, in the historicity of the book of Abraham, the book of Mormon. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was just kind of at the beginning of how um, things would, I think really change with the democratization of information that uh, social media would provide
0: was this around 10
1: years ago um even earlier than that right um
0: maybe 13
1: yeah probably i'd say i'd say yeah no it had to have been let's see because i finished my um dissertation finally in uh, 2012 and it was long before that so um but yeah, I, I do remember those days, and I remember interacting with you and, and, and being very impressed with um, not only your ability to to discuss complicated issues in a, in a manner that made it easy to pe- for people to comprehend, but in the way that you would, um, even as an apologist, address and respond to critics like Dan Vogel and, and Brent Metcalf and others that were, were on those um, same boards as well.
0: Those were, those were a lot of fun times. I remember those. I do want to give my audience a chance to know a little bit about you. I think that probably the majority of them will know who you are and be familiar with you. But could you tell us a little bit about your story? I know that you are um, a scholar, specifically in Bible studies, and you've done a lot of study in regard to that. I've read a number of your articles. I even had a book that you co-authored with John Twetness. And I think that was called Testaments. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, links between the Hebrew Bible and the, and the Book of Mormon. It was like a collection of many essays, as I recall. Yes, yes.
1: Sure. Uh, so um, I was uh, just very briefly, I was born and raised in um, San Diego, California area. I was uh, born uh, into a family that was very devout and active in the LDS faith. Um, I served a, an LDS mission um, in, to Brazil. Uh, came back and um, followed my uh, girlfriend up to Utah, because she was a student at BYU. We were married two months after I got home from my mission, and uh, I, had, I had been a, a terrible student in high school, so there was no way I was going to get into BYU or any other four-year institution. Unfortunately, um, BYU was um, in close proximity to a Utah Valley Community College, and I I started there, realizing that I needed some type of background um, that would provide some financial stability for for my new wife and our family that we were creating. And so I I began taking my studies quite seriously. Um, from there, I transferred to BYU, majored in history, minored in Near Eastern Studies, and. Um, uh, then I went to uh, Brandeis University a non-sectarian Jewish institution for my master's degree in Jewish studies and then once I was um, once I was involved with that uh, it became very clear to me that I, I I wanted to be involved with LDS Church education so although the intent was to continue from the masters directly into the PhD program there in Hebrew Bible um, I took a break. I went to work for the LDS Church in uh, 2000 and uh, started teaching seminary in in Grantsville, Utah, of all places, Um, and uh, did that for four years and then went back to Boston as an institute teacher uh, working on my Ph.D., and as I already shared, I finished that finally in 2012. I spent 18 years of my life as a full-time employee for CES, or the Church Educational System. Um, I left um, a couple of years ago uh, for reasons we can get into later if we, if we want to discuss. But um, now, um, currently, I am the Academic Director of Prison Education for Salt Lake Community College, which means that I I I literally run a college campus inside the Utah prison system.
0: Well, let me tell you that I share a great fascination and excitement about biblical studies. And of course, with my background, like your background, as those relate to specifically LDS scriptures as well. But the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, I know this is something that you have pursued and something you're very excited about, too. Um, Let me just share you share with you and the audience a story. I told this to you yesterday on the phone, but back in 1979, I just joined the church. I'm about ready to go on my mission to Japan at the end of 1979. And a fellow comes through town and he makes a presentation at the stake center on the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was something that was huge at the time, though I didn't know anything about it. I just joined the church. I have no particular religious background before joining the church. And he comes in and gives a slide presentation. He tells the entire history of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the first half. And by the way, this entire stake center was packed with Mormons who were all interested enough to go there on an evening for a separate meeting in addition to all the other meetings that Mormons have to go to. But it was packed in the stake center. I don't know if the overflow was filled as well. I was not in the overflow, but we were all seated cheek to jowl and it got so hot in the stake center just from all the bodies that were present, but he gave a break. There was an intermission, it was like gone with the wind, this presentation was so long. He gave a break, we all went outside, cooled off some, we talked, we're very excited, we go back in. Absolutely everybody stayed for part two. It was once again packed, and in part two, my recollection is is that the speaker, whose name unfortunately I don't remember at this point, but the speaker then started using the Dead Sea Scrolls to basically show the audience that the Dead Sea Scroll community at Qumran were pretty much Mormons. They had, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, yeah. They had the same Mormon teachings. They had the same Mormon organizational structure. It was a big deal that I recall that there were uh, leaders uh, in groups of threes over the congregation, and that was seen as to be a huge bullseye. it oh, didn't they? Didn't they even like say you know that they were practicing
1: baptisms for the dead and and things like that? If I remember correctly, the those early
0: books and firesides? I can't remember if it was for the dead, but definitely they, they showed the pictures of the, uh, the places where there were steps going down and talking about that it must have been filled with water. And mm-hmm. these were where baptisms were performed. Mm-hmm. I do remember that now that you mention it. And there are just lots of wonderful things, but we won't go into that right now. But the, the thing that I remember so much about it is that I was absolutely enthralled. Nothing in high school. Had ever grabbed my attention like this subject did and all I knew was I wanted to learn everything there was to know about it unfortunately here I am out in Sumner Washington I'm really not very well connected or directed and so I don't really pursue that I mean I am going on my mission as well but it kind of lays dormant with me for a number of years until I get back into it when I'm in my 40s but I absolutely found this subject fascinating and I understand that you do too. And I'm wondering if you had a similar catalyzing experience in your past that led you in this direction. Oh, and I I, I can connect so well with that um,
1: that story that you shared. And I remember being influenced by similar firesides and books growing up. It's just kind of my personality, and and I think we're kindred in that sense. Is that when um, when I become passionate about something, it's I, I pursue it you know, 100%. I, I, I'm i not a, you know, I, 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 in fact, to the point that I usually am so focused and driven um, on things that um, I tend to burn people out around me. And it can be something as silly as, you know, Halloween decorations or barbecue. Um, but in my life, it certainly, um, I was just absolutely captured by biblical scholarship and um, ancient Near Eastern history. And, you know, that was really... um you know, going to um, Brigham Young University, I began studying Hebrew because actually what took place, now that I think about it for a minute, is that um, I began at UBCC taking institute classes. And uh, at that stage, you know, I hate to admit it, I was I was a little bit of a, a, a cocky, young, returned missionary, and I um, had devoted myself at that point in line to, to a lot of study. In fact, on my mission— RFM, I would get up early. I would work very hard, of course, as we would uh, all of us, and and I'd be exhausted by the end of the day, but I would still get up an extra hour and a half early than the mandated mandated time period in order to study what I wanted to study. And I felt justified. It's probably the one rule that I broke on my mission. I felt like if I did that, then I could read what I wanted to read. Now, what I wanted to read were, you know, the Discourses of Brigham Young and Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, and I read both in English and in Portuguese the uh, three-volume Doctrines of Salvation set. So, you know, I, I became obsessed. In fact, I remember as much as I loved my mission, I kept thinking, I can't wait to get back home where I can spend all day long. Just studying the scriptures, studying Mormon history, and absorbing all of this information, I became so passionate about it. So by the time I got home from my mission, I felt pretty well-versed in Mormon history and Mormon scripture and was a bit cocky. I took the institute classes um, to help myself so that I could transfer to BYU, but I went in thinking, you know, it's going to be like a Sunday school experience, probably won't get much from these instructors that I haven't received already from books and articles, um, but I had an Institute teacher who knew some biblical Hebrew and he began writing some Hebrew words up on the, on the blackboard at the time and, and, uh, showing how that connected to the scriptures. And I was blown away and I thought I must learn this language. I must learn it. And so that's what I did when I transferred to BYU. I, I began taking biblical Hebrew and I even took, um, Ugaritic, which is an ancient Semitic, um, quote-unquote Canaanite language while I was at Brigham Young University, and, and from there it, of course, um, just uh, exploded in terms of my desire to study ancient languages. I'm a Semiticist, so I had the opportunity to study Akkadian, which is the language of ancient Babylon and Assyria. I did four years of that as a graduate student, and um, I do all the ancient Semitic languages now at this point.
0: At some point, you decided that you wanted to teach for the church educational system. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. In fact, that actually
1: happened pretty early on in my life. In fact, even as a missionary, I thought I started thinking because I was so, um, devoted towards, um, scripture study and towards, um, Mormon history. And it felt like I was a a good teacher that that would be a, 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 that would be the course that I should pursue. So what happened is that I, I went in planning to do that and, and, you know, I started taking the classes at Brigham Young University that prepare you for that career. And the first class that, at least at the time that you would sit in, I remember the the instructor would actually break down the numbers. And he would um, talk about all of the in-service programs that are operative throughout the United States, up at the U of U, at, um, you know, obviously Brigham Young University, and how many people begin the process of of studying to become a seminary teacher for the church and then at the end he said okay out of all of these thousands of people or whatever we end up hiring each year about 30 you know is the number so and then he literally said at this point he said so what this means for you is that it doesn't matter what your patriarchal blessing says about working with the youth and teaching seminary that can be fulfilled in a lot of different ways what this means is it's probably not going to happen for you in your life, so have a backup plan. And uh, I took that to heart, and my backup plan was graduate school at, at Brandeis University. And then once I was accepted, um, I ultimately decided to take that course uh, with the idea of getting the master's degree and the and the PhD and then um, probably returning to BYU
0: at some point. David, if you could tell the audience a little bit about Brandeis University, because I know that you are not one to blow your own horn, but Brandeis University is a big deal, isn't it? You know, it,
1: it is a big deal. And I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I was um, able to study there with such incredible um, instructors and developed um, wonderful relationships with some other students, uh, that um, have gone on to make quite the contribution to biblical studies. It's a it's an institution that was founded actually in 1948, which means that for the East Coast, that's a, a relatively new school. Um, but it is a non sectarian Jewish institution, and what I what I tell people that basically means it's not the BYU of Judaism. Um, it was founded at a time when, unfortunately, there was still a lot of anti Semitism in the United States. And that kept Jewish students from being accepted to Ivy League programs. So the Jewish community came together and said, let's create a Jewish institution. It won't be religious. So we will not be devoted to, um, you know, Orthodox Judaism or Reform Judaism or any other type. It'll be a Jewish institution um, that will recreate an Ivy League experience for our, our, our community. And because Judaism is a religion that has historically placed so much emphasis upon scholarship and the development of the mind as a religious quest immediately Brandeis was able to um, attract famous jewish scholars researchers professors um, to come to the institution and it became a, a a very important institution certainly for what i wanted to study which was in fact hebrew bible in
0: the ancient near east and at that point when you applied there you had already received an undergraduate degree at byu I was um, I had almost finished my undergraduate degree in
1: history and Near Eastern studies at BYU. Almost had finished it. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I'm guessing you got pretty good grades. Yeah, I did. I did well. I did.
1: I did well, which is surprising because I said <laughs> I barely graduated from high school. But you know, it was really this. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for the LDS mission is that I it taught me how to study it. I, I learned how to communicate more effectively, and I. it it certainly helped me to mature to an extent that I could, I could pursue education and and follow the career that I did.
0: Did you receive any advice from people or professors at BYU regarding the advisability of your going to study at Brandeis? Absolutely. In fact, um, I, the
1: first counsel that I was given was from um, one of my Hebrew professors and I'd already accepted the offer at Brandeis when he approached me and said, David, I think you should avoid going to Brandeis. And at that stage, RFM, I'm like, well, it's a little late in the game now at this point. Um, But uh, he then followed that up with the statement that you will be studying with an excommunicated Mormon. uh, And he is the only non-Jewish professor that they've ever hired for their Near Eastern and Judaic studies department. Um, now, he said, he will not be unkind to you. He's a very kind person. But uh, it's a clearly a reflection of how critical Brandeis is in their approach to the Bible that they would hire this this man. And um, as a believer, you will not feel comfortable in that type of environment. And I was taken back, a little bit about back by that statement, but... Um, you know, and I already knew that, um, you know, the professor that he was referring to, David Wright, and I'd, I'd read a little bit of uh, about him and was familiar a little bit with his scholarship. Uh, and I remember turning to my Hebrew professor at BYU and, and, and literally saying the words, well, thank you for your concern. I will never buy into something like the critical model of the documentary hypothesis to understand the... Um, the opening books of the Bible, but I do want to understand. I told him how scholars interpret this material. And so away I went now, now later I was also approached by one of my former religion professors at BYU. And he said to me, he said, David, I think it's wonderful that you're going to Brandeis, but, but don't study the Bible. Don't focus on the Bible. Choose something on the side of near Eastern studies to, to, have as your academic focus do comparative Semitics or focus on um Akkadian or become an Assyriologist do do something along those lines he said because we've never had a member of the church pass through a critical biblical studies program and come out with his or her testimony intact and I dismissed that as well because I was very devout but um I wanted to focus on the Bible. It's what I, it was where my passion lay. So um, that was the counsel that was provided and I obviously ignored it.
0: Well, you had been accepted. I mean, it does sound like getting accepted to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or some other incredibly prestigious university and then having people say, you know, you really shouldn't go there. Yeah, yeah it was, um,
1: you know, I, and, and I understood and appreciated their concerns. But I felt like um I felt like I felt like I felt that God had opened the doors for me to have this this unique opportunity, and I felt that my my role should be to to bridge those two worlds um, you know we we talked about a, a minute ago how this was kind of at the beginning of things in terms of social media and uh the explosion of information that would be accessible to people and I thought well. My job is to go in and, and show that you actually can study these things, understand them, and still be a devout believer. I felt like I, my responsibility, you know, based upon the doors that had been opened, was to not only show that, but to, you know, not that I would have all the answers, but that I could help people that were um, encountering those types of um, arguments retain their, their spiritual and religious convictions of, of Mormonism. So you know, I, I I certainly felt like it was something that I was supposed to
0: do and that, um, you know, was, was my path that God had chosen. Well, let me jump ahead a little bit because I think you were right about one thing and maybe wrong about another, as we've discussed. But you did go through Brandeis. You did graduate from Brandeis. And what degree did you have when you graduated there? So first I
1: did the master's degree in um, – Jewish studies. And um, and then I went back four years later for the doctorate in Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East.
0: So jumping ahead, you actually did graduate, I think, both times from Brandeis University and still had your testimony, correct? Yeah. You were, you were still a believer in Mormonism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, that's not to say that I had
1: not um, passed through some, um, some dark times of uh, faith crisis and whatnot. I mean, it, there were, I remember there were, there was a time when I was, um, you know, towards the latter half of my doctoral program out in Boston. And, um, I was teaching Institute at Harvard and MIT and Wellesley and, and loving my interactions with the students. But at the same time, I was struggling spiritually because I, I, you know, I just trying to reconcile and figure out how to, how to bring these two worlds together. It was, more difficult than I anticipated. And, um, I remember my dad came out from California to visit me and knew that I'd passed through some struggles. And my parents had always taken, they're wonderful people and they'd taken so much pride in the, in attending my, you know, BYU education courses. And I would get to travel around, uh, in the early years for, um, the churches know your religion program and sometimes go to California and they would come and they'd, they'd sit and they'd watch and experience a lot of pride as parents to, to see what I was doing with, with my degrees and, and whatnot. And um, so he was concerned and I, he came out to, to see me and he said, um, he said, he said, David, I understand. We had, we had this really beautiful conversation in the car as we were driving in, in Boston and, downtown. And I, he said, I understand. I believe what you're going through. For so many years, you felt that you could, through your education and scholarship, prove that the church is true. And now you can't do that. And that's got to be very difficult for you. And I was very open to him. And I said, oh, dad, I, I wish that was the challenge that I'm facing. It's that my scholarship proves that it's not true, at least not in the way that I had have, have always assumed. And that's much more difficult to, to, to handle and to address. And uh, he, my dad is a convert. In fact, you share a very similar background. My dad's an attorney and a convert to the church and, and a, a very open-minded man, a very kind, loving, gentleman. And And he just sat there for a minute and said, you're right. That is much more complicated than I, than I realized.
0: And what I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what you'd come to realize is that maybe what Richard Bushman would call the dominant narrative yes, not true. Yes,
1: yes, And that's not to say, now, I still was a believer. I mean, I, I still was, but I just was, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. So I, be, I realized early on RFM that with my passion for Mormon scripture and Mormon, and Mormon history, that I would have to continually shift my paradigm to accommodate new information that I was uh, obtaining through my studies. I realized that shortly after my mission because, um, you know, I was exposed to some challenging things and, um, and it was exciting and thrilling, but disturbing at the same time. So I felt, so I, i I'd, I'd been doing that my entire adult life. And so it was, although challenging, you know, I, I, I still was absolutely committed to the church and, and to a belief I just needed to find a way that I could reconcile it. And that's in part why I wrote um, author the old Testament, because it was a reflection of how I had made that critical scholarship work with
0: my devotion to Mormonism. I want you to know that I have at least the first volume in that, what I believe is a three volume series. I read it in 2016. I marked it up. I loved it. I went back and reread some of the parts in it, especially re- relating to the book of Abraham, which we'll get to in the, subsequent part of this interview, but yes, I can see exactly what you're talking about and writing how you manage to reconcile things for yourself. And this is definitely not dominant narrative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, and it, it's uh,
1: so, uh, and 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 I, you know, it's no secret that um, I'm no longer a um, active participant in the LDS church. Um, I left CES and I, I, I can't imagine ever returning to church other than to support loved ones and family members um, when they might be there. And um, so uh, it, it's, I'm, I can't remember where I was going with this, but it, my point being is that, um, yeah, it, 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 it has been a, a journey for me. I can, but I'm still, despite the fact of where I am as someone who no longer believes in an interventionist God and, I I don't believe in an afterlife. My goal is uh, spiritually is to try and make heaven on earth for humanity and my family, um, at the in the present and in the moment. But um, that having been said, I am still contacted by former students and and even family members who have questions once in a while and and want to understand how they can accept critical scholarship but still rationally hold a belief in Mormonism. And I'm happy to have that dialogue with them and and. I, my point being is I'm not, everybody's on their own journey spiritually and I'm where I'm at now at this stage and happy. But, um, my goal is to, is to help others along the way, wherever they might be. And so, um, I I think that's important to state for our audience just, they understand where I'm at. I'm, I'm not one to disparage religion in any form. In fact, I, um, once in a while will assign myself to teach, um, in the prison, a world religions course where. We'll explore Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and I and, and find the beauty that is within those various faiths and traditions. And I, I still feel there's beauty in Mormonism. And it certainly helps a lot of people live happy lives. And I think that's great.
0: I don't want to get too far ahead in our conversation, but is it fair to say that it was not your academic studies and biblical studies that ended up actually leaving leading you out of Mormonism.
1: Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, That's a hundred percent. Now, what, what, why I'm so grateful for my biblical studies, um, you know, that, that I, that I, that I pursued is that they gave me the tools to be able to critically assess religious text and even statements that were coming from religious leaders in the church in, and to be able to handle it and process in a way that I felt, um, comfortable in, in, in having a disagreement or a difference of opinion on. And so my critical studies gave me the tools necessary to be able to, to, to handle, um, that challenge, but they were not what, what, what led me in the direction. No, no, it was was, for me, they were, they were social issues. Um, Um, I could never feel the same about the church after 2015. Um, in the November policy that was issued when, um, the church made it so that, uh, the children of gay families could not be baptized. That was absolutely devastating to me. I just, I remember, um, re- I had become an ally at, at that time and had helped a lot of my students who were LGBTQ find ways that they could find a spiritual home in the church and in Mormonism. And I, I felt very passionately about that. And so when that policy was issued, uh, I was, it was devastating to me. I remember that following Sunday morning, um, as I prepared for church and I was all alone and sitting in our living room. And I, um, I, I, I just, I broke down like a just weeping, just sobbing. And I, I'm not one to, to cry certainly to that extent very often in my life, but it was, um, it was just so painful to me that um, the church would go in that direction, and I immediately approached my administrators in church education, and I said, "I got to put this in language that you understand. Um, I know with every fiber of my being that this policy is wrong; that it's not of God. Um, I still support, and I, I want to help, and I want to sustain, but but this is this is not this is not right." And they appreciated the honesty, but then they were left with, well, what do we do with you now? And I said, I don't know. And so, you know, in their, in their defense, I, I, those, those men that I interacted with were very kind and tried to to help me process that and, in a way that so I could keep my job, which I wanted to do. But at the time, so it, it was a very difficult period for them and, and, and for me and for my family. It was uh, shortly after that that my one of my children came out, my daughter came out. Uh, to us as a result of that. It was after the two thousand and fifteen policy, and that really sh- she told me that my um, openness and how painful this was for me um, gave her the courage to to come out and and to to our, to us as a family and to the world as as a as a as a gay person. And um, now um, in I have um, four children. Um, two of my children are gay. And um, one of them is with a transgender partner. So we have um, a lot of beautiful diversity in our, in our family. And I, I wouldn't want it any other way. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But that um, that was a big issue for me. And I'd always been, to be quite frank, I'd been more disturbed by um, those issues with the church. And um, of course, our, our treatment of African-Americans historically um, you know, and um, also with um, the way that women are, are treated as second class citizens um, institutionally. And so these were, they were social issues for me. And um, I had found ways of just making critical scholarship work as, as authoring the Old Testament illustrates. But those were things that I, I couldn't, um, I, I just felt too passionately about. And so it, 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 those issues took me in the direction that, that we now find ourselves as, as a family.
0: And that is, uh, largely out of the church, correct?
1: Yeah. My wife stopped attending while I was still teaching and that made it, um, a bit difficult, but I, um, and, and for her, her journey is her own. I mean, she was troubled by those things as well, but, um, you know, there were historical issues and and polygamy and things like that, that, um, that had caused concerns for her throughout her life. So, um, she stopped attending, and that made my relationship. And I, I fully supported that, but I it made my relish, relationship with CES complicated for a little while. Um, and now, uh, my oldest daughter has returned a missionary, and I have two grandchildren thanks to her. and And she is very active in the LDS Church, and we love her and support that. And um, but my other three children are are, are completely outside of the church.
0: Can I take you back now to Brandeis? Sure. Let's do it. You've just been accepted to Brandeis University. By the way, I led into this by saying you were right about one thing, that you would keep your testimony in spite of Brandeis, although I understand it had to be uh, adapted Mm -hmm. to what you were learning. But you you were still a faithful and believing Mormon out of Mm -hmm. Brandeis, as you were before Brandeis. But you had also vowed to one of your professors that you would never Mm. accept or believe or buy into the critical biblical method, or the documentary hypothesis. <laughs> yes,
1: you were, and I love that you're. I was right, and I was wrong because what happened was, um, I I remember I was my very first semester of um, pursuing my master's degree. Actually, I was taking a course on ancient Near Eastern law, and as part of that course, with you know, in the first couple of weeks. Um, the instructor put up the slave laws that are found in the Hebrew Bible. There are different laws pertaining to slavery. And we started looking at them, comparing and contrasting. And for the first time, I took seriously what was in there. Because normally, as a, as a Latter-day Saint, you don't focus on things like biblical slave laws, right? It's not something that we normally Look at, but I was looking at these for the first time and seeing the discrepancies and realizing that they were interacting. That the authors of these texts were interacting with um, with one another and presenting different and alternative viewpoints concerning justice. And it was just so obvious and clear. and And from there, I thought, okay, so these are different sources that appear in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and once you open that door, you realize, okay, so there are different sources. Well, that is, in essence, all the documentary hypothesis is, is it's the recognition that these five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, have different sources in them that were created by different authors at different time periods, and sometimes tell the same stories over again and repeat them as doublets, and sometimes they intentionally contradict one another. And so immediately within the first couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, well, that's the documentary hypothesis. It explains the data more clearly than any of the traditional models. And so it's just obvious. And now I have to reconcile that with my testimony. And so, you know, that it took, yeah, it, it, although I said that to the professor and I believed it sincerely, it only took a couple of weeks RFM before in that graduate program before I realized, okay, yep this model works. I better learn to accept it. And and it, it wasn't, it, it was strange art. Because uh, on the one hand, I felt uncomfortable as a believer, as my professors recognized that I would. But on the other hand, it was so thrilling and, and exciting that this material was for the first time in my life really making sense. In fact, even a complicated book like the book of Isaiah once I wasn't trying to fit it into a Mormon paradigm and, and think, oh, this passage is talking about Joseph Smith. This passage is talking about the Book of Mormon. This is talking about Jesus. Once I approached it historically and looked at it from that angle, all of a sudden the book like that actually made a lot of sense. And it was so thrilling and exciting um, that I was hooked. I was like, this is, so on the one hand, it's uncomfortable, but on the other hand, how fun is this to actually have these texts that you've studied throughout your life, um you know, you know you know makes sense i guess is the best way to put it
0: right prior to the documentary hypothesis in your critical studies in the bible isaiah really was a sealed book
1: yeah oh it is and it is it remains so for most latter-day saints right because you you will pick out a, a verse that um and say okay this is about jesus but then you look at the context around it and you're like wow He's talking about historical events and armies and Hezekiah and you know how is and, and all of a sudden Jesus right here and it, it just it doesn't work. But then when you approach it from a critical angle and then you start to see the development of the sources even in Isaiah and and how they reflect historical time periods. It's 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 not a sealed book any longer. And that's that was really exciting for me. And that's, it's why I continued doing what I what I
0: did despite the fact that it was also challenging. Right. And I mentioned a sealed book somewhat ironically in relation to Isaiah, because of course, Isaiah chapter 29 Mm -hmm. talking about a sealed book. Yeah. The he that is unlearned can Mm -hmm. read, but the learned cannot because it is sealed, right? Yeah. Can you just say a little bit about critical uh, theory? Because I know a lot of people, when they hear the word critical, they think that the whole goal is to criticize the Bible. Excellent. That is absolutely correct, and um,
1: that is correct in the assumption, but it is it, but it is an incorrect understanding. I, indeed, critis- critical does not mean to criticize; it means to approach objectively. It means to try to interpret the Bible um, free of any contemporary religious, political, or social agenda, and instead uncover the authorial intent and how that text would have functioned and in ancient times and how an ancient audience would have read it based upon the evidence that we can obtain historically, textually, and archaeologically. So it does not mean to criticize or critique. It means to read objectively.
0: Now, you're at Brandeis University. You do actually end up studying under David P. Wright, correct? Yes. And he is the excommunicated Mormon that you were warned about. He was, indeed. Can you tell the audience a little bit about David P. Wright's background? You don't have to go into huge detail, but I know that I had, well, frankly, I had the barest exposure to David P. Wright as a member of the church. I'm still a member of the church, but back in my more apologetic days, I know that he had written some articles uh, using his tools, the tools that he learned, same tools that you learned that he taught you. Uh, looking at uh, texts like um, I think it was Alma chapter 13 Mm -hmm. and comparing it it with Mm -hmm. Hebrews 7 Mm -hmm. and showing the dependencies and the relationships between the two. And he ended up getting in hot water with the LDS church because of his publication such as that. Is that right? That's correct.
1: Um, He... uh He did his graduate uh, study at uh, UC Berkeley and studied with Jacob Milgram, a very famous um, Hebrew Bible scholar who focuses a lot on Leviticus and ritual. And that inspired um, David Wright to, to, to study those topics as as well and become one of the foremost experts uh, in the world on those topics as they pertain to the Hebrew Bible. Um, He began recognizing through his critical studies that um, that the traditional understanding of Mormon scripture that he held was not true, and it was very painful for him as a graduate student. Uh, he had gone into his studies, wanted to become another Hugh Nibley, and he recognized that um, that probably wouldn't happen as a result, and that was difficult, I know, for him. Um, but Upon graduation, he went, despite his devotion to critical studies, went to teach at Brigham Young University, which is shocking to some people, um, But um, given how he felt. But at the time, this was when Jeffrey R. Holland was the president of, of BYU, and he had made his famous statement that he wanted BYU to become the Harvard of the West. And so David still loved his community and felt connected and wanted to be a part of that still. And so off he went to BYU where he was eventually fired, not because of anything that he taught in his classes, but because in personal conversations, he had um, questioned um, the ability of prophets to foretell the future. Um, he had quite, he didn't believe in, in a universal flood. I mean, really basic things, unfortunately. And so he was let go um, and uh, it ended up, being a a good thing for him because as i mentioned he was picked up by brandeis university and um has continued his scholarship and and contributions to the field in an extraordinary way now some people will um have have wondered if um in fact i have just been i you know brainwashed by him or just uh you know uh just un- uncritically accepted the models that he presented to me as a um, as my professor that I studied with, and and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, we studied. So I I, wor- I studied with him for two years with my master's degree, and then did another um, three years of uh, of coursework. Um, for my doctorate, and then of course there are their comprehensive exams, and I worked with him with my on my Northwest Semitic comprehensive exam, and then I I specifically chose David to um, be the advisor for my dissertation. Um, so to, he's obviously had a huge impact upon my life, and I and I hold him in high esteem. Um, but despite all of those years studying with him, honestly R.F.M. I would say that. The times that we discussed things like Mormon scripture, or um, I could I could probably um, you know count on one hand, and that we're talking three or four times in all of those years, because it just um, was not our specific focus. I was there to study the critical models on the Hebrew Bible and to learn languages and skills that he offered, and and we developed a friendship. And there were times when we had those discussions, but they were very rare. Um, I certainly didn't just buy into the same models that he held and espoused or that my other professors had. But what happens is that almost everyone who goes into biblical studies, regardless of what background they're coming from, they come from a traditional conservative believing background, whether that's Mormon or evangelical or even Jewish. Um, But... When you sit down and start to run the data, and you you see it, and you you just inevitably recognize that it is the critical models make greater sense of the evidence, and it ends up affecting the people that study there. Which is why the advice that I was given by those professors at BYU is not unique; it's actually the standard um, that has been used for many years in conservative evangelical seminaries, for example. Um, Evangelical scholars will go through and they will study uh, the history of scholarship and they'll focus on that or they'll focus on Semitic languages and then they return to their respective uh, faith communities and are hired and present themselves as Bible scholars when they have never had to engage these issues carefully and critically. And uh, that, that way they escape it. And that's why you'll see some very smart, very gifted scholars of Egyptology or Assyriology or, or you know, ver- various topics um, that still espouse traditional conservative viewpoints at um, not only BYU, but um, evangelical seminaries as well.
0: Well, it seems to me such a huge missed opportunity With David P. Wright, as you mentioned, the only non-Jewish professor, is it of a certain subject at Brandeis, or the only non-Jewish professor at all? Oh, the
1: only non-Jewish professor in uh, the Near Eastern Studies program, the um, Jewish and Bible Studies program that was offered there. And and that was at the time I I haven't kept up on things, but um, that's quite the honor for him.
0: Yes, he's a huge deal. Yeah. And, Br- and Brigham Young could have. They have him. They could still have him. They could. <laughs> I,
1: it's, uh, but um, you know, I, I BYU does not. And I'll I'll just say this. They. They. But they they don't want those those sorts of ideas presented to students. They don't want professors writing and publishing on critical viewpoints and perspectives. The purpose of the institution is to um, educate Latter-day Saint youth and to um, give them skills, but also help them stay squarely in Orthodoxy and in the faith. So it just, it just never would have worked out for him.
0: Yes. There's this um, quote that you mentioned from Elder Holland some time ago when he was the president of BYU, that he wants BYU to become the Harvard of the West, not mm-hmm. the Brandeis of the West, the Harvard of the West. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but either he changed or he's expressing a different side of that. When I think it was just last year at a presentation that he made, I think it was at the Neal A. Maxwell Institute, uh, some kind of gathering where he was talking to the different scholars and he made it very clear to them that if the time came when they had to choose between their scholarly pursuits and defending the church, First off he anticipated that that time could come for a lot of the scholars in religion but if that time came they needed to go with plan B and defend the church even if it contradicted their studies as a scholar. Do you remember that presentation he made? Um I I don't I don't know that I do. I ha- when was when was this? I think it was
1: just last year. Mm, yeah, I I don't I don't I don't pay too much attention these days as to what's happening in the institutional church, but, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Fair enough.
0: Now I want to keep going back because I know we keep getting ahead, but that's fine because we're going down a lot of important paths, but back at Brandeis now you're studied under, uh, David P. Wright, an excommunicated Mormon and, but you still want to do what it was that David P. Wright wanted to do, which was to teach at BYU, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the, and at the time, can you also explain to the audience, because you said you're teaching at the institute buildings at these different prestigious universities, did you say Harvard and uh, MIT, Wesleyan? Uh, yeah, at Wesley College, um, Wesley which college.
1: is, yeah, the the famous um, women's college um, out in uh, the greater Boston area that um, Hillary Clinton and others went to.
0: But you taught at the institute programs at those colleges? I did, mm-hmm and when you're teaching for over half of my career that was what i did yeah and how much is half of your career 8 years yeah must have been about that so yeah
1: well at that time it had been most of my career it had been spent doing that and then um i came back um to utah um
0: with the goal of of teaching at, at brigham young university um David, can you back up for just a second? Sure. Because you had explained something to me yesterday on the phone that I was not completely cognizant of. But that's the relationship between Institute and BYU professors all being under the same umbrella of the CES or the church educational system. Oh, good. Yeah, I think this is very important because
1: when I tell my story and share it with some people um, and they're not familiar with the structure of church education, um, in, in in within Mormonism, they'll express sometimes some shock that I uh, would consider after you know studying with this famous excommunicated Mormon and doing critical Bible scholarship that I would think that I could ever find a home at Brigham Young University given that background, um, but. Brigham Young University is technically part of CES, or Church Educational System, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So CES is the big umbrella under which there are two divisions. You have the Brigham Young University schools, and you have seminaries and institutes. So BYU is simply the more academic branch of CES. And I was already employed by CES. Literally, what I was hoping to do was simply move into the more academic side of of employment, given my background, so that I could have uh, support to do my scholarship and publications that I wanted to pursue and attend academic conferences and things like that. So I, I think that's important to note. Yeah.
0: I cannot help but note there's this issue that's going on, at least in my mind, that you are actually studying with an individual David P. Wright, who was a professor at BYU, and then was let go because of just uttering his non-orthodox beliefs, not in class, but just other people at BYU. And yet, you felt that you would be able to find a home at BYU to pursue your scholarship after studying with David P. Wright. Did you ever wrestle with that dichotomy?
1: Uh, No, because I felt that, I felt that everything had changed, that the church had evolved from that time period and that we were, I mean, naively so, but I, I I, still believed that that was the case. And I believed that it had to be the case because of the information accessibility that the internet would provide members. And so there would need to be um, individuals who could handle and address those topics and, and say, I still believe, and here are some ways that you might. Want to consider looking at the matter so that's um that's how that's how i felt and at the time and and i as i mentioned i i felt like god himself had opened up the doors i mean i i had by the time i went back from my phd i had four children um and we're moving to the boston area which is incredibly expensive um and uh, we're living and we're renting a, a a small little home with one tiny little bathroom with four children, my wife, myself, and we have it, it's such, such a tiny little bathroom we couldn't even take a bath in in the bathtub it was so small. And but we're able to make it work so that um, so that um, I could have those opportunities because that my wife supported me and we just both felt like this was what the Lord wanted us and our family to do.
0: So here's what I'm envisioning. As I listen to you talk, you're an individual who has a passion about the gospel. You went on a mission. You got married, presumably in the temple, two months after you got back from your mission. You have children like you're supposed to. It is very interesting, the very Mormon way you said that. Is that we have all these children, so I guess I better do something to get a job so I can finance these kids that I already have, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I, was, uh, I grew up in the, in the,
1: as a kid in the 70s, right? And, you know, Spencer W. Kimball and all those ideas. And when you're as committed and devout as, 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 as you and I both were, you're not going to put off having
0: children. Right? That brings the spirit children down to your home. Absolutely. And then you have this passion for teaching, you have this passion for the gospel, you go to this prep course or whatever it is, where they say we get millions of people who are applying for this, but it doesn't make a difference what it says in your patriarchal blessing, we only accept a very limited number. And I'm sure that's even a smaller number for actually professorships at BYU. But here you've been out, you've, you've gotten incredible, incredible degrees at incredible universities, you have qualified yourself for the work, to paraphrase Section Four from the Doctrine and Covenants, you have totally qualified yourself to be head and shoulders above pretty much anybody else who's applying at BYU. So, why wouldn't they want you? And also, you've got this whole attitude: is this is the information that's becoming available? I've immersed myself in it. I have learned it. I've been through some rocky times, some dark times of the soul, but I've made peace with it. And I've got stuff that I know that I can contribute that will be valuable that will help members of the church in an academic setting such as byu when they inevitably encounter these issues for themselves yeah that thank you that's a very kind way of articulating
1: it but it's um yeah it's a good summary of of how i felt and i felt that i my goal was to again to to build a bridge between these two um disconnected worlds and um and so i did i i uh when I applied to BYU, and I mentioned this yesterday, when, uh, to for the position of um, um, in ancient scripture, I had David Wright um, write a le- red letter of recommendation on my behalf, and the other letter of recommendation was submitted by um, Bill Hamblin, the very famous Mormon apologist. And for those who who know Mormon studies and its history, that's a rem- that's quite. I intentionally chose that because it was a reflection of, of who I was. Bill Hamblin and I were actually very close friends. I studied with Bill as an undergrad at BYU and, um, uh, he's passed away now. And I, to this day, I, I love the man, um, um, quite deeply. He, he meant a lot to me in my life. And, um, you know, we had a little bit of a, a falling out at the end as I began to be more open with my critical views online and things like that and, and my criticisms of, of of Mormon apologetics. But, um, you know, I always still very much loved the man. And, and he wrote that letter of recommendation together with David Wright. And again, going back to what I was saying, those who understand the history of that will recognize how extraordinary that was because Bill Hamblin and David Wright— um, Argued back and forth in print, in Sunstone, about the legitimacy of historical criticism and how one could reconcile that, perhaps, with Mormon scripture. So the two of them had been had been butting heads for for quite some time. But I, it was a reflection of the of the relationships that I had cultivated and where I
0: was at in terms of trying to harmonize these two uh, dissonant worlds. Right, it's almost like these two letters are physical documents that show your ability to build this bridge.
1: I, 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 I hoped so. In fact, um, I've got my computer because we're on a, we're recording this laptop. So I just pulled it up. Um, would you be interested in, in hearing um, Bill Hamblin's letter that he wrote on my behalf? I would love to because he he sent it to me, which is unusual, but he did. It was um, in April twenty eleven. He wrote, Dear Search Committee, I am writing to recommend that David Bakavoy be hired by your department. I have known David for 15 years, since he was a student at BYU and have followed his work and progress closely. I feel I am in a good position to evaluate all aspects of his character and professional capabilities. First, I want to emphasize that David is a fine Latter-day Saint. In his personal life, he exemplifies those qualities of compassion and faith that are the hallmarks of disciples of Christ. I'm confident that he will serve as an excellent role model for discipleship for our young BYU students. His decade of teaching with CES culminating with his position as CES coordinator for the Boston area confirms my assessment. Second, I've had the opportunity to watch David in a wide variety of classroom situations, institute classes, education week, and professional papers at conferences. Quite simply, David is a master teacher. He um his, his master, he is master of both the subject matter with his in-depth knowledge of scripture and LDS doctrine and of teaching methods. His classroom demeanor and performance and his relations with students are superb. Finally, David's scholarship is also first rate. He has published a number of LDS-related articles on ancient scripture with the Maxwell Institute and with religious education. His publications are always insightful and enlightening. He is also published in the Journal of Biblical Literature, the flagship Journal of Biblical Studies. He has thus demonstrated that he is able to speak both the language of faith and the language of scholarship in his research. There are many professors who are great teachers and many others who are great researchers. David is both. In conclusion, I strongly and without hes- any hesitation or qualification recommend David Bockevoy for a position in your department. He is exactly the kind of candidate religious education needs. Sincerely william hamlin department of history byu that's a great letter in that beautiful i i just it means a lot to me even to this day as i think back on my relationship with him and um those feelings and it it makes me feel emotional even just just to reread it because even though i'm obviously in a different place now um just such kind sentiments and was i was very grateful for that
0: well that seems like quite the entree for you to be hired um, yeah, I, I certainly felt
1: so. I felt like it was just a done deal because, um, traditionally because BYU is under the umbrella of CES, um, when Institute teachers, um, actually pursue a doctorate, regardless of what topic it might be, they are almost immediately picked up by, um, BYU and brought into, um, either ancient scripture or ch- the church history and, um, doctrine department to, um, to teach. So I felt like, yeah, with, um. You know, I taught at BYU for two years, and my um, student evaluations were were above the departmental average, which was already quite high. And um, given the scholarship and and things that I pursued, I I did feel like it was just inevitable. So when that did not happen, um, it was it was devastating to me, to to beyond words. It was as if somebody in my life had had passed away or died.
0: David, so you're you're teaching at BYU. For two years before you apply for the professorship, yes. Okay, that was one thing I didn't quite understand. Yes. So you've already got two years under your belt. You've got these great reviews. You've got the letter from Bill Hamblin, mm-hmm. um, and then it doesn't happen. Can you tell yeah. the audience about that? Well, um, what happened was that, uh, yeah, I was, uh,
1: um, I was, uh, you know, I was approached uh, first by uh, Carrie Mulestein at the time, um, and asked to come into his office and have a conversation with him. And um, he wanted to know about my feelings regarding the book of Abraham, the book of Isaiah, and Bible scholarship. And he had some concerns um, regarding my approach to these matters. And um, he, I can't remember if he was like the assistant to the dean, I think he was at that time or something. But anyway, he held an administrative position. So the fact that he had some concerns um, was my first sign of perhaps maybe things aren't going the way that I thought. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind, he was, he was very kind to me. I don't mean to disparage the man at all, but it was, he was very kind and it's his responsibility and stewardship to, to address those concerns if, if they are there. So I, I, um, I didn't begrudge him for that. It was a little bit, frustrating to me because on a personal note because actually I had been with CES longer than carrie had um in fact I had when carrie was a brand new professor at BYU I was out at teaching institute at already for in, in the Boston area and I remember bringing him in to talk with John Gee once to our institute students there in the Boston area on a fireside on the book of Abraham and and afterwards um Kerry approached me and asked if I could you know sign some documents about what he had done so that he could show that to his To the ancient scripture program to, you know, as he would try to advance through the ranks of that. And I was happy to do so. So I was a bit frustrated because I'm thinking, you know, this isn't right, because I've been in church education all of these years, longer than Carrie and many of the other instructors that were there in ancient scripture. And I'd never had anyone who had attended my courses question my orthodoxy or anything that I'd presented in a classroom setting. And so to have that all of a sudden start to be raised as a concern, I, I was surprised, honestly, and, and when that happened. But ultimately, that led to um, an orthodoxy hearing where I sat down with um, members from the Department of Ancient Scripture, and one by one, they asked me questions regarding my scholarship, my faith, and, um, you know, my my... Relationship with David Wright and how my views maybe were similar or different from his, in order to determine if I could be at BYU. And um, I thought it went very well, but I later learned afterwards that um, uh, the search committee did not even put my name up for consideration for a vote by the faculty um, because of concerns that they had. Uh, so I wasn't even given a chance um, to be presented for a vote and that was difficult.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about what happened during this orthodoxy hearing? What were their main concerns specifically?
1: Well, I mean, one of them, you know, and, and Carrie was concerned at the time because I had, um, ex- you know, certainly expressed my conviction that um, that uh, the so-called catalyst theory for the book of Abraham was, um, was a very logical way for a Latter-day Saint to approach um, the book, given the evidence, and that he was concerned about that, because at the time he was very much um, a proponent of the missing scroll theory. And um, so there was that that was raised, um, and, uh, you know, I uh, I remember um, I was asked the question, um, by one of uh, the one of the professors who I considered to be a friend and I had a very open relationship with him and in front of the whole group. He really caught me off guard and he said, David, um, if I Google your name and I um, and Joseph Smith, the first link that comes up is you making the statement on a message board that Joseph Smith could be both pious fraud and, and prophet. Could you explain that dichotomy? Cause that doesn't make sense to me. And I was very taken aback by that because of our friendship, and I thought, you know, I wouldn't do that to someone I, I I just wouldn't if I had a relationship with someone and I had that concern or any other, I would approach that friend first and say, "Can you help me understand this before presenting it to a whole group in a in a in a meeting such as that and And given our our friendship, I was very taken aback and i and i my response to that was, well. I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, but um, I had many conversations with Dan Vogel, and that's the language that Dan uses. And I could see myself saying, even if you're correct, Dan, that Joseph Smith was a pious fraud, I would still believe in his prophetic role. And um, and then one of the instructors interrupted, and she, a female, said, um, "Well, David." Isn't that what do you, what? Isn't that concerning? Because what will happen if one of your students, googles and finds that, and they find their 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 instructor, um, making that statement and interacting with Dan Vogel's scholarship in that way? Aren't you afraid that you may cause students to lose their testimony or their faith? And I responded to that. I remember I said I said absolutely not. What that will show is that their their professor is intimately aware of the critical theories regarding Joseph Smith, and yet he still believes. And that, to me, would be nothing but a positive thing. On top of that, it will show that student that he or she does not need to fear engaging critical studies and models regarding Scripture, regarding Joseph Smith, and and not be afraid of those things, that it's something that they can learn about and still stay um, squarely within, within the LDS Church. And that was my response to that there was also a question that i recall um one of the instructors asked me the question do you believe that god wants you to be at byu i mean how do you answer a question like that rfm you know you're an attorney right i mean if i say yes right then it, it's like a jesus trap question right right if you, you know if you say oh yes god wants me to be here then you're arrogant, and like you know what? Uh, I mean, what a terrible thing to say is, "Oh, God has ordained me to be at Brigham Young University and to teach here." But if you say no, you're applying to a religious institution that feels very um, passionate about following God's will. So you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm like, what a terrible question to ask somebody. I didn't say that, verbalize that, but in my mind, I'm thinking that. And and my response at the time was, you know, I. I don't pretend to, to have direct access to the heavenly mind. I don't, I'm not going to speak for God and what he does or does not want to do. All I can state is that I believe God opened the doors for me to pursue this critical studies path so that I could help. And if I'm going to do that, I have to be at BYU um, because no one is going to hire a biblical studies scholar. Um, to come and you know publish things about the Book of Mormon or you know analyzing it through the lens of of um, of ancient scholarship or what it might be and things that I would like to do and contribute. So if I'm thinking it from that angle, then I will say yes. I believe I I should be here, and that that was basically my answer.
0: Were you getting any kind of feel from the uh, people who were asking you these questions as to how they were taking your answers?
1: You know, honestly, I felt like, uh, they were good answers and that they, um, and that I, I felt like, I felt like I left feeling like the situation had been resolved to the point that I, when I I learned and was told by a friend that, um, they wouldn't even submit my name for the faculty to vote on as a possibility to be hired. I was
0: not only upset, but I, I was, I was shocked. They tabled you in committee.
1: Yeah, and, and what, and, you know, it was, um, I, I sent, uh, an email, a couple of emails to, um, to those involved and in the people in ancient scripture expressing my disappointment and frustration. And, um, I remember hearing back from one administrator and, um, his response to it was, um, what we're most concerned about David is that you we're given this information on our internal hiring process this is this is unacceptable um, if we're going to move past this and and have a an, you know an opportunity in essence for you to be considered is, is the way that i took what he was saying um, we need you to tell us who who gave you that insider's information and I I you know I just I was I was shocked that it would that that would be the response that I would receive from that administrator but it was and um I uh you know just I can't even remember exactly how I responded but it was just something oh thank you for your reply and um you know I, I just left it at that because I you know wasn't going to wasn't gonna play that game and you know try to fulfill my dream by throwing
0: somebody else under the bus. It's That's not the way I would ever behave. Right. And the way I read that situation is that was a false hope that was being given to you in order to try and get you to give up this person. Because there's no way that just because you give up the person who gave you the insider information, that suddenly all the issues that <laughs> they have with you and David P. Wright and your biblical criticism and Dan Vogel and Google uh, suddenly go away and now we'll hire you. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It immediately made me think of Alma chapter 11. Uh, What is it? Uh, Behold these six aunties, which are of great worth, I will give unto thee. (laughs) Oh, you're, I
1: that's why I love having these conversations with you. That's fantastic. What a great analogy. I, you know, and it made things very complicated, RFM, because um, I was still with CES at the time, right? I just wasn't in the BYU arm of it. And so, um, Unfortunately, this situation. Whereas up to that point, um, no one had ever ever questioned my orthodoxy. All of a sudden, by CS administrators, I was kind of looked at as um, as a black sheep, and they started to take note and pay attention. and And I would be called into the church office building and questioned about my scholarship and things that I had said and you know, online. Or I, I also began. Um, I when that didn't work out, I I I went up to the University of Utah. And um, did a postdoc at the U of U. I taught two semesters of the Book of Mormon as literature. It's the only time that um, the Book of Mormon has ever been analyzed for an entire semester in a public institution. And I was able to teach the Book of Mormon at the U of U of all places um, from a literary perspective for two semesters. And then I taught Biblical Hebrew, the language, and I taught a course. Um, I taught Hebrew Bible, and I taught. I designed a course called Sex in the Bible, and. Um, as an employee of, of, of church education. And um, when that information got back to um, administrators and CES, they were very concerned and called me in again and said, this is just not the, um, which is their right to do. But They said, this is not the um, image that we want to present um, in religious education, teaching classes like sex in the Bible and things like that. And so we're um, giving you an, an ultimatum. You can either choose to be a seminary teacher or choose to be a Bible scholar, but you can't be both. And, um, admit you need to make this decision. And, and in fact, they also told me that we are concerned that you'll expose, um, college students to biblical scholarship. And so, um, if you make the decision to stay with us in CES, you're going to, um, We will not allow you to teach institute and college students again, but you'll be working with in the seminary program and teaching teenagers, high school students in a teaching position that requires a bachelor's degree. So, you know, here I was, I was facing all of these very difficult issues. And I I said, you know, I said, this is this is not. I, this is frustrating to me because the whole reason that I'm teaching these classes up at the University of Utah and later I did the same thing at Utah State University was because you're not letting me work with college students in in the church and I feel like this was what this is what I did it's the career that I that I pursued and I have to justify my my studies to my family and to myself and 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 use this degree so when I'm stepping into a place like the University of Utah, I can't, I can't say, "Oh, I'm going to teach a class on human intimacy in the Bible." That's, you know, that's something that would be make CES people comfortable. But you're going to use the word sex, you know, in the academy and and, and things like that. And I, so a little bit frustrated by that. But they, um, you know, I, I, this happened over and over again. And I do not begrudge these men that um, put me through that situation. They were. It's that's their their responsibility. It's their job. It's what they um, are hired to do. And and they were operating according to their strong spiritual and religious convictions of helping me, my family, and 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 the church itself. But now, as I've stepped back, I look back on all of that RFM and I realize, despite their good intentions, um, that was very emotionally abusive, and uh, what I, I I went through in it it was it was a very difficult part of my life which is why i'm 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 so happy now to have disengaged from from that it's one of the reasons why i um really stopped following not only stuff that was happening with the church but in apologetics and even in mormon studies for quite a while i just disengaged because it was it was just too painful
0: so basically when they gave you the ultimatum that it was they didn't want you to poison the the college students, but the high school kids were fair game for you.
1: (laughs) Well, the idea was that
0: I wouldn't feel as tempted with, with high school students to get into the mysteries, if you will. Right. But, (laughs) but at that point you said, thanks, but no thanks. No,
1: I I didn't. I mean, at that point I stayed, I mean, I, I really, I, I stayed, I, I, I still loved the church. I loved CES and I, I spent my whole life doing this and this was so, um, I, you know, and I, I was already, had moved my family out to Utah from Boston. So, you know, it was, it was, I, I, I chose to be a seminary teacher and, um, and did that. And I ended up loving it. I, I, I love helping people and I develop, and I've got a pretty playful personality. And, um, so it, you know, I, I, I enjoyed that experience, although my heart did ache that, um, other opportunities weren't given to me. But it, um, it was still, it was, so it was not until the November, 2015 policy where the first time I thought, I don't
0: know that I can keep doing this any longer. So you were still teaching seminary as of November, 2015. Yes, I was. How long had you been teaching seminary? Um, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I jumped between, you know, I
1: did, uh, let's see, I don't know. And I'd have to do the math. Uh, you know, uh. I'd been an Institute instructor for at that point for probably five years, I guess, no five or six years. And then um, I had taught seminary at the beginning of my career. And then I was doing it for a couple of years at the same time I was teaching at BYU. So, you know,
0: I, I'd, I'd been in the system for a while. Hmm. Cool. I'm hearing that you've done everything to prepare yourself to be a valuable contributor to byu as a professor and they don't want you they don't want you what you have to contribute uh not only do they not select you they don't even put you up for a vote Mm -hmm. and then you can't continue to teach institute because that's the college kids as well right yeah so then you got to be and i'll just use the word demoted okay okay sure demoted to teaching the high school students Mm -hmm. and like you said you only need a bachelor's degree to be a seminary teacher. Yeah. And you've got a doctorate Yeah, from Brandeis. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and yet I just dug my, I just dug in and said, all right, my, I went into this to, to try and help people. And because of my love for, for LDS um, scripture. So um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to try and rock it to the best of my ability. And, um, and I did, and they were they were, they were, were good years for me, despite the fact that I would be called into the church office building, like I've mentioned. Um,
0: oh, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm going to- No, up. you're good. Good. You've mentioned this, being mm-hmm. called into the office building to be talked to. Now, that I want to get into, because I've never even been to the uh, church office building. I've seen pictures of it, and I understand that there are, important people in the church office building, but what does that mean when you were called into the church office building to be talked to about your teaching methods? Um,
1: what that means, it it wasn't my teaching method. It was never for anything that I'd ever said in the classroom. I, I mean, I successfully navigated that bridge for years and years and years. So I, I, it was never anything that I taught. In fact, um, no one ever raised a student, never raised any concerns about anything that I presented in the 18 years that I spent with CES and, and all those men, and they're all men. Well, there's one woman actually, but, um, the men and women, I, men and woman that I um, worked under during all of those years, directly under either as principals or, you know, institute directors or whatnot who knew me and had observed my teaching, um, there was never a concern on that. I, they were concerns about, um, like I said, some of the courses I was teaching at the U or a post that I had made on Facebook that had been submitted to the church office building where I was talking about the historical Jesus or, you know, things like that, that outside of the class that they were
0: concerned about. So what is that like? I mean, forgive my interest, but you get a, a phone call, you get a letter, you have to go in, do you put on your, I expect you put on your tie and your suit to go to the church office building, and who do you talk to and how does that go? Um, You, you get, so um,
1: CES administrators, CES administrators. Um, I didn't meet with any uh, uh, general authorities over these issues, they were all, um, they were all CES administrators, um, and, let me pause for just a second. I am trying to find, I think I know the, remember when we were talking yesterday, we were talking about a letter that I had written. Mm -hmm. I do. I I think I know what we're talking about and
0: I'm trying to find it. So just give me a second. Okay. You go ahead and you look, and I'm going to tell a story while you're looking. Okay. Okay. Cause this has to do with sex in the Bible. By the way, it strikes me as strange that on the one hand, Mormons are so hung up about sex as a subject, as uh, illustrated by the, the situation you had with your, your, um, your course, the uh, Sex in the Bible. And yet Mormons, as part of their plan of salvation, conceive of exaltation in the celestial kingdom as being entirely rooted in the heterosexual sex act. So on one hand, sex is not only part of salvation, sex is what constitutes salvation and exaltation in a very real sense in Mormonism, and yet they get hung up about the fact that you're teaching a course titled The Bible and Sex, or Sex in the Bible. So that's one thing. Are you still looking? I am, and I don't know if I found it. I, I thought I could find it, but I don't know that I have it. Okay, I've got another story to tell. Okay, guys. I'm teaching gospel doctrine class from 2006 to 2010. This is when from when I'm 46 to 50. And I start with the Old Testament. And I go through the full cycle. I end with the Old Testament. And during this time period and a little bit before, I become immersed in Bible studies through the Learning Company and watching videos, basically auditing classes taught by Bart Ehrman. And I got fascinated by that. I bought a bunch of books that he had read and I, I devoured those. I found them fascinating. And then I started getting into the Old Testament with a series of videos from a class taught by Amy Levin or Levine. Um, and she was fantastic. And that got me into the whole Old Testament thing, which is somewhat, I mean, there's some similarities and overlap, but there's a huge huge, uh, different area of studies in the Old Testament from the New Testament, like the documentary hypothesis and all these other wonderful things. And so I'm incorporating these things that I'm learning about and that I'm excited about and that are shining so much light on the gospel and Mormonism from my point of view with my class members. And this is just a little podunk town in uh, Western Washington, totally out of the way, small ward. and uh, But by and large, People are loving it. I mean, the people who aren't going to the bishop and reporting me for not sticking to the manual. But those people didn't like it, but there were a lot of people who really, really enjoyed what I was bringing to the class. And when I'm bringing to the classes, all the things that I'm learning from all these Bible studies. And to finish it up, I finally got released from the calling. It was in the middle of the Old Testament. Like I said, I started in the middle of the Old Testament and finished in the middle of the Old Testament in 2010. And we were on the book of Ruth. And so I figured I'd go out with a bang. And I decided to talk to the class about what it probably really meant when Ruth uncovered the feet. Was it a boaz, by the way? Uh yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a shocker. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's um <laughs> It's an, an interesting, you know, because I a lot of my research interest was on the divine council of gods um, in the Hebrew Bible and ancient Eastern traditions. And when I went to I, I pursue my my dissertation, I knew I would talk on that because I had published quite a bit on, or that I would write on that because I'd published quite a bit on that. But then I realized from that, it morphed into the council of gods in the opening chapters of Genesis, which deals ultimately with the story of um, the first man and woman in the garden and the discovery of sexuality. And that led me into um, a, a, a thesis where I had to explore um, human sexuality from an anthropological perspective and relate it to my academic research. And it um, it was a fascinating journey, but that's the reason why I, I, I taught that course. I wasn't trying to just be you know, provocative. It's that I ultimately gleaned a lot of fascinating insights that I enjoyed sharing academically.
0: Mm -hmm. And I have gotten the man of the Lord or is it a child of the Lord? Yeah. 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 We won't go into all that, but yeah, I've I've read some of those things and those concepts and those ideas really open up a lot of things in the old Testament to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Um, I, uh, I found. I did. I found. I found this letter that I wrote. Um, Yay! I'm so glad. Okay, it's um,
0: I don't know. It's a bit. It's it's a bit lengthy. Here's my challenge to you. Okay. I want you to read it. Number one, without first off, that's number one. Read it. Number okay. two, don't omit anything. <laughs> I know <laughs> okay. you're going to be tempted. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. I don't All want right. any unspoken ellipses in this document. Okay. And three, right. to
1: the extent that you're able to. No, no, I, I have this. This was, okay. So what this letter is, is I'll, I'll, I'll share it. Um, this, the first time that I, as a CES employee was called into the church office building to meet with administrators because of, of their concern over, um, my devotion to historical scholarship. Um, you know, I was told by one of the administrators that what I was doing was detrimental to the kingdom and, and, and inconsistent with the spiritual approach to scripture. And here I am, I'm like, I've devoted my entire life to studying the Bible from this angle, and, and you're being critical of this. And, and instead, he's telling me that, you know, scholarship should be focused primarily upon studying the um, general conference addresses and things like that. And um, and I said, I'm sorry, but I absolutely disagree with you. I said, my perspective on spirituality is much more consistent with what the Prophet Joseph Smith said when he said that Mormonism is a religion that seeks to embrace all truth. Let it come from whatever source it may. Therefore, when there is truth that is found in Bible scholarship, we need to understand that and bring that into our understanding of religion. That's my approach to it, and it's a spiritual quest. Anyway, they disagreed, and um, they assigned me a number of talks that um, I was supposed to read and then produce a document explaining to them what it means based upon these talks to be a religious educator for the church. And um, so they gave me these talks and um, I, I looked at them and I was very, I I was very upset. And so I, um, I wrote this response and I I did send it to a number, even some, a couple of general authorities at the time.
0: Is this a document you produced?
1: Yes, this is this is the document I, I produced. Um, Dear Brethren, I am grateful for the time you spent collecting this material for me to consider. I recognize that this took time and effort on your part. I know that this was done in the spirit of love and with a sincere desire to help me succeed as an S&I employee in that seminaries and institutes. You have my love and appreciation. I am more than happy to use Elder Johnson's talk on receiving correction. Elder Holland's talk on pitfalls and Brother Brant's powerful essay on maintaining doctrinal purity to formulate a statement that will represent my understanding of the expectations and boundaries of the teaching of a full-time religious educator. I'm going to speak with love and frankness, however, concerning the other talks I was assigned. It is now 3 a.m. my time, and I have been so troubled by this, I have not been able to sleep. To speak honestly and openly, though I support you and love you, I do not agree with the way I am being treated, nor the expectations you are presenting. I will preface my comments with the following official statement from the LDS newsroom on doctrine, quote, not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, or necessarily, necessarily constitutes doctrine. A single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, but is not meant to be officially binding for the whole church. With divine inspiration, the First Presidency, the Prophet, and his two counselors, and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the second highest governing body of the Church, counsel together to establish doctrine that is consistently proclaimed in official church publications. The doctrine resides in the four standard works of scripture, the Holy Bible, the book of Mormon, the doctrine and covenants and the Pearl of great price, official declarations and proclamations and the articles of faith. Isolated statements are often taken out of context, leaving their original meaning distorted. End of quote. My concern is that these talks you have assigned to me construct what a full-time SNI, to, to help construct what a full-time SNI employee must conform to seem out of harmony with the direction we are currently receiving from the brethren. And so, to be honest, I'm not sure how to respond in formulating a statement. For sake of illustration, I'll simply point out some of the changes challenges I'm facing, though many more could be identified. For instance, Elder Mark E. Peterson's address on avoiding sectarianism presents his view of orthodoxy as one that rejects science. He uses the 18th century argument on the fixity of the species to support his position. However, even during elder Peterson's era, genetics did not in any way, shape or form suggest that species were fixed or bred true. This assertion, though well-intended is simply incorrect and not consistent with the direction the current brethren have directed our focus as a church. Unfortunately, this is the same argument, by the way, that Elder Peterson used to criticize the civil rights movement and argue in support of the need for racial purity. These views have now been disavowed by the church. I should not be expected to conform to them by my S&I administrators. Moreover, Elder Peterson speaks out quite strongly against sectarian scholarship on the Bible, arguing that Latter-day Saints know more about that ancient record than any other people. He seems to be referring to doctrine, which I certainly agree with, but I have a hard time responding to this premise as it is articulated. It just feels wrong, brethren. I believe that there there is much we can learn from scholars, and even people of other faith. Moreover, though I certainly share his praise of Elder Talmadge's work, Jesus the Christ, as a spiritual book of considerable merit, I had my 19-year-old daughter, currently serving a mission in Chile, read the book prior to her departure. The fact is that many of Elder Talmage's views have been proven incorrect, not only in terms of biblical scholarship, but due to the fact that Elder Talmadge did not have access to the Joseph Smith Translation. I could go on, but this talk just doesn't feel right to me, and I sincerely hope that I'm not expected to endorse these views from 1962 in order to continue teaching in the system. In terms of Elder Packer's 1995 address... It seems that this talk was chosen for me since Elder Packer specifically condemns my academic training, i.e. higher criticism. I understand his concern. It is a challenge. And, And yet, while President Packer feels such pursuits should be avoided, not all of the Brethren have consistently shared his view. For instance... Concerning higher criticism, Elder John A. Witzel articulated a perspective which I personally believe is necessary for us to pursue in light of the information accessibility that the internet provides because, brethren, the intellectual views of scholars on how biblical sources developed are not going anywhere. Elder Witzel wrote, quote, in the field of modern thought, the so-called higher criticism of the Bible has played an important part. The careful examination of the Bible in in the light of our best knowledge of history, languages, and literary form, has brought to light many facts not sensed by the ordinary reader of the Scriptures. Based upon the facts thus gathered, scholars have, in the usual manner of science, proceeded to make inferences, some of considerable, some of low probability of truth. To Latter-day Saints, there can be no objection to the careful and critical study of the Scriptures, ancient or modern, provided only that it be an honest study, a search for truth whether under a special call of god or impelled by personal desire there can be no objection to the critical study of the bible end of quote it seems to me that rather than being pushed out for my training that the system might actually want someone with a sincere testimony of the restoration who published academic articles in scholarly venues concerning this approach to biblical studies at least that has been my belief up till this point Moreover, Elder Packer's talk also condemns evolutionary science as a philosophy incompatible with the gospel. I love President Packer. I support and sustain him. As I understand it, however, the church does not hold an official position on evolution. Thus, rather than ask me to conform to this ideal, I believe that we as religious educators should profess the church's current position that there is not an official orthodox stance on this matter. In fact, The Church's recent official release on DNA and the Book of Mormon relies upon evolution to explain the challenge DNA research raises for the Book of Mormon's historicity. The article's detailed scientific explanation gives a tacit approval to the foundation of genetics, which is evolution. This is evident in the argument's supportive statements, such as the molecular clock, used by scientists to date the appearance of genetic markers is not always accurate enough, and I'm quoting here, to pinpoint the timing of migrations that occurred as recently as a few hundred or even a few thousand years ago, end of quote. As a professional religious educator, I do not believe that I should be forced to take a position contrary to this new statement, nor should we give the impression to our students that in order to accept the truthfulness of the gospel, they must accept the positions advocated in Elder Packer's address that there was a universal flood, and that the story of Babel presents a historical account for the evolution of human language, etc. Again, from the LDS Newsroom, quote, Some doctrines are more important than others and might be considered core doctrines. For example, the precise location of the Garden of Eden is far less important than the doctrine about Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. The mistake that public commentators often make is taking an obscure teaching that is peripheral to the church's purpose and placing it at the very center. This is especially common among reporters or researchers who rely on how other Christians interpret Latter-day Saint doctrine, end of quote. I believe we need to teach the doctrine and leave students to come to their own conclusions on the merits or lack thereof of evolutionary science. This has been my approach since I entered the system 14 years ago, and this is the first time I'm being pushed by administrators to represent another view. In terms of evolution and the literal versus figurative nature of the opening chapters of Genesis, I feel much more comfortable with the position advocated by President Hinckley who said, quote, when the church requires, what the church requires is only belief that Adam was the first man of what we would call the human race. To this, President Hinckley added that scientists can speculate on the rest and that he recalled his own study of anthropology and geology with the words, studied all about it didn't worry me then doesn't worry me now" end of quote finally i feel i should complete one of the stories to which elder packer referred since it seems to parallel the way i have been treated first by byu and now by sni though not named one of the men elder packer spoke of was religious educator and scientist william h chamberlain who was forced to resign his position at BYU for teaching students such concepts as evolution and higher criticism, something that I have never done in 14 years. In 1926, President McKay wrote the following words about Chamberlain, quote, that a lofty, sincere soul like W.H. Chamberlain should have been compelled to struggle in our community and have been misunderstood by those who should have known him best seems to me to be nothing short of a tragedy, end of quote. To speak personally, as I face this most recent challenge to concerns on my own orthodoxy from my brethren, despite never having taught anything at all controversial to my students in 14 years of employment, I take much comfort in this assessment by the prophet of God concerning Chamberlain. Brethren, I love you. Please know I am not trying to be difficult. These are very important issues to me. As I shared with you, I truly want to stay in church education. I've always tried to be true to my charge. I support you in your assignments. Tell me what to do and I will do my best to put your counsel into practice. However, these talks you are asking me to use to formulate a statement on what it means to be an SNI employee were given years before I entered the system. If the expectation had been that I renounce evolution, advocate for the necessity of a universal flood, and teach students that in order to believe the gospel, they must accept that the story of Babel presents a literal portrayal of the way languages historically evolved, I could not have taken a position in SNI. I certainly cannot promote these views in 2014, nor do I believe that the brethren would feel comfortable in having me do so. You have shared that you do not trust me to teach at an institute level for fear that I will share with college-level students ideas taught in biblical scholarship. Please remember, half of my career in SNI was spent teaching institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, without a single problem or incident. Thus, I do not believe I am being treated fairly. I can tell you that, I, that since I began teaching courses on Bible and on the Book of Mormon at the University of Utah, I have been approached by nine different Institute students who have been disturbed that their teachers have taught them the very ideas you are asking me to conform to. I have shared with them that it is my understanding that the church does not have an official position on how literal or figurative to interpret the opening chapters of Genesis, that if they want to believe that God literally created the world in six days, that he literally created Eve out of Adam's rib, as a Latter-day Saint, they are free to accept such a position. If, however, they wish to accept these opening chapters of Genesis as inspired scripture that teach true doctrine, yet mix scientific observations into their own personal understanding of the way God created the world, it is my understanding that they are free to accept such a view and and remain a member in good standing. Even though I have not been an institute instructor, nor identified as one to these students, they have all left feeling much better about their faith. Brethren, I strongly believe that rather than the direction you seem to be pushing me with these talks, that as religious educators, we should advocate for the position I articulated to these students, troubled by what they were learning in Institute. Sincerely, your brother, David Bockevoy. That is a great letter. Oh, thank you. It's been a long time since I've looked at it, but and I apologize, it is kind of long, but I mean, that's that's, what, that's where I came from.
0: What I hear in that is you folks who are in administration for CES are telling me that I'm out of line with the leaders of the church for teaching or actually not even teaching these things, but for believing them or talking about them outside of class. But really you are the ones who are out of line with the leaders of the church. And I'm going to cite these leaders of the church to prove that fact.
1: I suppose there is that. And I, you know, I, I, I do not want to disparage um, these men I really don't they um, in fact I, I need to stick the follow-up to this was that instead of um, instead of asking me to create such a document um, these men spent many hours sitting down with me one-on-one talking to me about my journey talking about my, my viewpoints doing everything they possibly could to help me feel comfortable and to stay in in ces and i am very grateful to for the time and the love and the compassion that was shown um these are not these are not bad people these are these are men and women who um sincerely believe that um they are charged by god to to help build up the kingdom and the the faith of the youth of the church and and they are committed to doing that and they were also committed to helping me and my family every step of the way so you know I, well i was whereas I can talk about how i, I yeah it was emotionally a, a, abusive that was not the intent and um and i have nothing but love and respect for them I I, I I do and i and i'm and i'm happy now that I'm in a different position and um I don't have to worry about that and they don't have to worry about me and so no hard feelings at all just the opposite nothing but but love. And when I, some of these men now, when I bump into them, I'll go up and give them a hug or, or whatever. And I, nothing but positive feelings about them.
0: What I hear, and by the way, that's all to your credit. You're a very humble, humble fellow. Uh, apparently from everything you've described, you're much more humble than I am, but and probably more than most people on the planet. But what i hear them doing is yes love compassion spending all this time talking with you but the underlying assumption of these meetings is ultimately you're going to conform to what it is we want you to conform to or you're not going to be teaching for the church
1: yeah oh, absolutely which is their prerogative I and mean, that's their stewardship i mean if you know i mean if if, if a, a teacher that they hire that they pay that is is not teaching or not holding views that um they as administrators feel comfortable they have every right to 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 um to give that ultimatum I mean, that's i it was it, it, it's just as it was my right to to say eventually that okay i i, I can no longer do this and i'm going to go
0: pursue another career right and all that makes a certain degree of sense to me if we're actually talking about what it is that you're teaching in your class I think it's a little bit more removed when we're not talking about objections to what you're teaching in the class, which is all orthodox for your entire time period. But now we're talking about things that you're not teaching the students, but private views that you are communicating in other venues. Yeah,
1: I agree with you. But the way that they, but it gets to the way that CES um, employees are treated um, and viewed. Uh, It is made very clear when you accept the position that you are a a representative of the church and that you need to not only in but outside of the classroom um, not do anything that would cause the church um, embarrassment or cause people to lose their their faith I mean, it just comes with the territory in fact it's one of the reasons why um historically ces would um let women teachers go female teachers would be let go um once they were once they were pregnant you know you think about how legally precarious such a move is but um you know ces teachers are treated in essence as as hired ministers um for the church and and therefore the government's not going to step in and tell a religious group who they can and cannot hire as a minister so um you know it it, 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 that comes with the territory and you accept that as 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 an
0: employee of ces that that's the expectation so here they're giving to you all these talks. And by the way, you're you're commenting in your, on your letter, excuse me, you're commenting in your letter on various talks, including one apparently from the 1960s by Marky Peterson. Is that one of the talks mm-hmm. that you were given to review? Yes. Mm-hmm. It, specifically because he's so critical
1: of um, of biblical scholarship and saying that, you know, we as Latter-day Saints know more about the Bible than any other um, people. So there's no need to turn to To scholarship or people of other faith to to gain insights we are the ones who have the information it was a a pretty remarkable statement but it was chosen to me because of, of my background which was concerning to these men
0: right well i want to pursue that but i do want to tell my story here briefly because i was very very into mormonism and i read so many books and i particularly focused on books related to doctrine and history and more academic subjects, if we can call it that, within Mormonism. Every uh, year or so, I, w- I would wait with bated breath in Austin, Texas during the 1980s when I'm going to college and going to the bookstore to look for the Sydney B. Sperry Symposium collection of all the different papers that had been presented, and I would go through those and all sorts of things like this. And it came to the point where I was reading so much in Mormonism that I gradually realized that by and large, everybody was saying the same thing and that there was a certain defined area in which Mormon scholars were allowed to talk. And beyond that, they really did not venture very much. In fact, there were some general authorities such as Bruce Herman who made it very clear that we know this much, this very limited amount. And beyond that, we cannot know anymore. I think he said things like that, by which I interpret him now to mean that he could not know anymore. But whatever he knew is what the limit was that the members could know. So I grew up with that, but I continued to study. I branched out a little bit, but it was in around 2004, 2005. Once again, I owe this to Bart Ehrman. And watching these lectures that he was giving, this is just a basic New Testament 101 college course that he's giving. And I'm walking on the treadmill while I'm watching these. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone, try and get in some sort of shape while I'm learning something. And um, in some ways, that that might tell you the importance that I initially thought that I would have watching these videos is I'm going to do it while I'm working out. But as he's talking, he is describing what are the very basic components that have been known and discovered over the last several hundred years in Bible scholarship. But, of course, I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. Because I have been spending my whole life looking at the New Testament exclusively through Latter-day Saint sources. And so I thought I knew everything that there was to know. And I certainly would have agreed with Elder Peterson at the time that the the Latter-day Saints know everything about the, the Bible better than anybody else knows. But what I'm experiencing is something completely different, which is I'm finding out that there are mountains and mountains of new information that I'm finding out just watching this videotape from Bart Ehrman while I'm walking on the treadmill. And the image I had was it was like waves of information just breaking over me. And it was incredible. It was exciting. It was fascinating. And what I came to understand was that I had spent an awful lot of time looking at the New Testament only through. Latter-day Saint sources and realizing how myopic and even incestuous those sources were as they related to the New Testament, that they were so small as far as their ability to understand the New Testament. And there was an ocean outside of it of information, which I had carefully shielded myself from with a little help from admonitions of leaders of the church, but that it was there and it was free for the taking. Yeah, I can so... Um, resonate with that
1: story RFm absolutely I and mean, that's that's really what what I experienced in my own journey in terms of scholarship uh, I remember the way that uh, that I became hooked as an as an undergraduate at byU I hear I was studying um, biblical Hebrew and I'd taken a semester of Ugaritic and um, was minoring in Near Eastern Studies, a history major, and I had never been exposed outside of my own readings to the documentary hypothesis or anything critical. and it, it had been very limited. Um, my focus had been, you know, I, well, I came home from my mission, and I wasn't even interested in what Mormon scholars had to say. To me, if it was if it wasn't spoken directly by a general authority at one point in time, I'm like, why would I bother? Um, so that's where I was initially. And then I started to open up and and realize, oh, there's some interesting things about the scriptures I can glean from BYU religion professors. And so I started to study that. Um, but I really, at least in those early years, never certainly ventured beyond that. But one day I was standing in the BYU bookstore and, um, there was a book uh, by a, a scholar by the name of Robert Alter, and the book was titled *The Art of Biblical Narrative*. And I remember picking it up and I kind of scanned through the pages. And, and He was talking about these things called type scenes. I'm like, "Whoa! I've never heard any of this or heard any of this before." And I I bought the book and I devoured it. I just could not put it down. It's like the you know story of um, the Book of Mormon with. Um, uh, Parley P. Pratt, right? He just, sleep became a burden for me. Right? And, and it was that exposure that I realized there is a wealth of information that is out there outside of Mormon scholarship um, that has been produced for the past 200 years that can really help me understand um, this sacred collection of material that I have come to, to love so passionately.
0: Right. And just briefly about the type scenes, when I discovered those, and I discovered those from Amy, Mm -hmm. Amy Levine. uh, All of a sudden, I'm starting to look at the Book of Mormon, and I'm saying, well, look, here's Ammon, and he goes to preach to the king of the Lamanites, or King Lamoni, and there's this huge kerfuffle there at at the court, and there's this big conversion. And then we go over to Ammon now, and Ammon basically has the same thing happen. And I go from thinking, is this so much a lack of imagination on the part of Joseph Smith or just a coincidental you know similarity of events if it's historical or is it an exercise in type scenes being used as a literary device in the Book of Mormon did you ever go there oh absolutely absolutely in fact when I taught the Book of Mormon as literature up at the University
1: of Utah um, you know we spent a lot of time identifying those uncovering those I actually published on Oh, on a a type scene in the book of Mormon. And I think it may be, I think when I explored that, it may have been the first article ever published for the interpreter journal that's
0: um, edited by, by Daniel Peterson, a dubious distinction. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I, uh, anyway, I, I know I, my, I did publish the first article to get that journal going. Um, and, um, but, uh, to help get it going. But it's, um, but I, and I, I I think if I remember correctly, that's, that's the piece where I explored a a type scene in the book of Mormon. It may have been another
0: publication, but yeah. Are you you aware that no, no. Are you aware that the interpreter has published a new article every Friday of the week for the last (laughs) approximate 1 million years? (laughs) (laughs) I was not aware of that, but that is,
1: Quite remarkable. Yes, <laughs>
0: that's wonderful. It's all in the quantity.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting journey. I mean, you know, like I said, obviously, I was very close with these these men, Daniel Peterson and Bill Hamblin, and you know, um, you know, I just very close to these men, and um, you know, I, I, I we obviously have very strong disagreements at this stage in life, but I. I don't have any negative feelings towards those guys. They do what
0: they do. And I do what I do. Do you have any stories you'd be willing to share regarding any close encounters of the Peterson kind? <laughs> um, you know, uh,
1: you know, I, let me say this. Um, I understand why so many people are frustrated with, with Dan Peterson. And, um, he is uh quite sarcastic and um you know it's part of his 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 uh sense of humor and um he, you know it just i understand it i understand it and he certainly as editor of um first the uh, farms review and then later the um, interpreter uh, published um apologetic pieces that would um attack the messenger um more than they would the ideas that the the um critic was presenting and those i don't i don't i don't want to overstate and say that that's all they did it's that's certainly not true we know that's not true but there were some that um that i found quite problematic and and even openly discussed with him and and posted about online and things like that um so i understand i understand the frustration um but I, i i still see despite all of that I, I still see him as a a good person who might have disagreements with but someone that I that I love and care about and, and, and I I hope he has a happy life
0: you are you are aware that the Radio Free Mormon has bestowed upon him the sobriquet of Daniel Peterson the artful dodger of Mormon apologetics
1: <laughs> you know I that's right I remember you mentioning that I I uh, when you first started going to RFM, I listened to it a couple of your podcasts, it was, it was, I was highly impressed. And then I just disengaged because I just wasn't, um, you know, I, 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 I just haven't followed Mormon studies, let alone podcasts or anything like this. It was literally your, your, um, your work with, um, with, with, with Brian. And then later with Dr. Rittner that kind of got me excited again and why I reached out to you.
0: I want to come back to that here in a second, but I, before I do, I have a few other questions I have to ask you about that fascinating letter that you read. Mm -hmm. There's a big pause there because there's a number of questions, but let's go with this one first. It seems to me that based on what you're quoting versus what they are having you read, uh, that there appears to be a disconnect between different leaders of the church. And of course, I think you're driving at the heart of that when you're quoting the definition of scripture from the LDS church website or Doctrine, Doctrine from the LDS Church mm-hmm. website. Did you ever get the sense that the administrators or CES might be treating you differently than the leaders of the church would be treating you?
1: Um, it's a
0: good question. I certainly, Yes, um,
1: but depending upon the church leader. Right? There are certain church leaders that um, are much more open towards... Um, Critical scholarship than others, and I'm sure we all know who those are. So I, I would say it would depend upon who we were interacting with, and you know, it, it, going in these men's uh, these administrators in their defense, I would say that you know, they were they are these are men that you know they 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 don't study outside sources at all. Their focus is on the general conference addresses and things like that. And when you're, and when that is your whole focus, um, your perspective on, you're going to, you're gonna going to even follow up on at that time, at least they don't think they were really paying attention to what was happening with the gospel topic essays and things like that. Um, as closely as they later would. Um, and that's why I was able to kind of talk about the, you know, DNA, and, uh, the book of Mormon issue and, and use that to talk about, <laughs> Hey, this is, this is evolution that they're drawing upon here. Um, because I don't, I'm, I'm quite confident that none of them had ever read that essay at that point or stage. Um, and just because their focus was really on what are the, what are the current brethren telling us? And I think that's true for a lot of, um, CES employees, just generally speaking.
0: Yes. Uh, Forgive the question. What I was trying to do was to uh, ask you if you reached out to any particular church leaders. uh, No, not,
1: not any particular um, church leaders. I, I did not. Um,
0: Where did Elder Holland, you mentioned Elder Holland to me in a, in a phone conversation we had. I thought it was Elder Holland.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know. My understanding was, so I, uh, when I, after I went through the, the BYU experience, um, I, I reached out to my very dear friend at the time, uh, Terrell Gibbons, and it told him what had happened. And, um, he was very upset with me and felt it was quite unfair and concerned. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I don't have all, I don't have firsthand information on all of this, but it was my understanding that, um, that, um, either he or somebody connected with him reached out to elder Holland regarding what had transpired. And in essence, he, it was concerning to him. And in essence said, you know, you the cause is just, but I can do nothing for you sort of thing at this stage. And I, you know, and I, I don't know, I've never had, I've never met him. I've never had any conversations with him or any high ranking official in the church. So I, I, you know, I shouldn't speculate as to how they would feel or what they would do. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I hadn't, hadn't thought about these things for quite a while because my life has taken such a different course of direction. And, and it's, and it's a good thing
0: for all involved, certainly for me and my family. And before we talk about that, there was something that you mentioned about D Todd Christofferson. Oh yeah,
1: that's true. It was, um, so, um, when I taught the Book of Mormon as literature up at the U, of course that drew a lot of press um, because it hadn't been done before. I mean, even the national press, Huff Post and whatnot, was—I was getting calls and interviewed, and um, so there were a number of articles that were were published at the time. And it didn't identify me; they none of them identified me as a, as a as as an active member of the church, let alone a CES employee. Remember, this was a postdoc I was working on at the U at the time that allowed me to to teach these courses, and. Um, Anyway, all of a sudden one day, um, I, I got a message from um, Grant Hardy, Mormon scholar and you know wonderful human being, and he sent me a message on Facebook and he said, "David Bakovoy just quoted by an an Elias Apostle." I'm like, "What?" And uh, and sure enough, um, uh, he he shared a link and Elder D. Todd Christofferson in his um, address that he gave a couple of years back to the Library of Congress on the Book of Mormon. Um, quoted me from one of those pieces about the Book of Mormon. And um, that was, uh, you know, of course, (laughs) fun to be quoted by an LDS apostle, especially when I'm struggling with administrators, you know, that are like, oh, you're not, we're concerned about your scholarship and and stuff. And so that was kind of nice to be able to have that little feather in my
0: cap. Yeah. And they're giving you conference talks by, church leaders to read and you're the guy who's being quoted by church leaders. <laughs> At least that one occasion and I, I, I suspect that will be the one and only time in
1: my life where that happens, RFM. <laughs> <laughs> well that's one more than me, I can tell you. <laughs> but you know, it was cool and I'm and I'm glad. And you know I I these are I, 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 I am mean, being very sincere. I mean I'm in a different place, but I I have nothing but um, warm feelings towards my years in CES, my students there, the administrators. And, you know, it, it's a, it, it, it's a difficult thing to navigate. And, um, these, um, I, I people just are doing the best they can. Um, in, in, in light of that challenge,
0: a question that comes to my mind is, Oh, okay. Now I've got to think here, uh, an insider's view to Mormon origins. That was, um, Grant Palmer. It was another Grant, yes, Grant Palmer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he was in a situation where he was an institute seminary teacher Yes, for many years, and apparently, he kept a lot of his feelings hidden, ends up writing a book. There's a great deal of criticism from certain quarters of him for flying under false colors, quote unquote, while he was a teacher for the church, even though apparently he was not a believer. At some point he changed to being a non-believer, but he kept going for the purposes of keeping his job and his retirement. Based on what you've described, do you have any particular perspective you want to share regarding Grant Palmer and how he handled things? Um, It's not, it's not the course that I took,
1: obviously. Um, you know, I left, um, when I reached a point where I just didn't feel like it was, I was being true to myself, my family, to my students, in the church. Um, I, I I left CES, and, um, and and I after eighteen years. And if I would have hung on for for another two years, it would have meant. Um, you know, a much better situation for us in terms of, of retirement after twenty years and, and whatnot. But um, and I, I left with an unknown financial future. I I, I took a position academically, and I, but you know, it was a thirty thousand dollar a year pay cut for my family, which was very very difficult for us. Um, and then, um, after the after that happened, I one of my children started to have some serious um, health challenges. And, and I wasn't sure what that would mean for us in terms of insurance. Cause I didn't have anything permanent set up at that time. So it was a very scary, um, move, but it was the right one for, for me to make. Um, and it's different. It's different than what Grant did. Um, but that having been said, um, I don't think negatively of him for doing that because having gone through a, a similar experience, I suppose that is that he did, um, I recognize how challenging that is. It's very difficult. I mean, especially when you've devoted your entire life and career to, um, to the church, um, and and without it, and then not knowing what your financial future might be in your family. And it just, that's, it's just, it's hard. That is a hard thing to do. And so, um, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think negatively of him for for going a different route. And I, it was my understanding, based upon what he said, that he was pretty open with CS administrators at the time, and they said, "Okay, let's put you in the prison system to teach institute there, and you can just teach courses about Jesus Christ." And um, you know, I don't
0: know. I, I I'm not privy, but that's how, That's the story that Grant that Grant shares. Right. Um, it, and maybe I asked the question in a bad way. I really wasn't trying to elicit any kind of judgment. No, 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 no. But no. It's, it's as you're telling your story that I'm developing a greater appreciation for the challenges and pressures that Grant Palmer was was going through. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And um, what's interesting to me about Grant is that um I did meet him a few times. We interacted a few times um before his passing and um, one time, I was actually giving a presentation on the historical Jesus and talking about critical scholarship regarding the New Testament, which is also one of my great passions. Um, I was giving this presentation, and it made him feel very uncomfortable. And to the point that we had a nice conversation afterwards. And and those who know Grant um, and know his work will recognize that he was very conservative when it came to Jesus. A very critical about Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and Mormon um, history, but he drew the line at Jesus. Right? It, it, he wouldn't take those same critical skills and apply them to the New Testament and, and Jesus because of his strong religious convictions that he kept um, in, in that area. Um, which is always interesting to me when that happens, because from my perspective, it's like, once you develop those skills and, and you look at it that critically, um, why draw the line? You know, you just, you, you've got to be consistent. And the truth is, is that the same challenges, well, they're not the same, but higher criticism presents challenges for traditional understanding of not only the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and and specifically Mormon scripture, but it does the same thing for the Bible. Both Old and New Testament, and so I, I've never been one to just draw the line and say, "Okay, thus far, but no further." Um, if 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 I'm using critical models to understand the Book of Mormon, then I should use them for the New Testament as well. So that's where we were very different, and it was, you know, everybody's on their own journey. But that always kind of surprised me, and and this won't surprise those who are familiar, because didn't he write that? Uh, and I didn't read it, but he wrote a
0: a book on coming under Christ or something that after, after Insider's Guide. Yeah, something like that. And it is an interesting thing. And I don't mean to be disparaging at all uh, to Grant Palmer. um, But very interesting that he ends up sort of doing kind of the Mormon thing or other religions, but he was a member of the church and uh, then he wasn't, but he still maintained this Mormon attitude as it related to Jesus Christ, which is I can see all these things as they apply to Mormonism, but I'm not going to take the same tools that allow me to see these things as they relate to Mormonism and apply them over here to this area. It's like there's a King's X Mm -hmm. on this area because this is my belief. Yeah. And therefore I'm not going to allow my, the tools that I have and that I've demonstrated and that I've used successfully over here to deconstruct this area Which is where I want to stay and where I want to believe. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And I
1: and I appreciate, yeah, we're not being disparaging. It's an observation. And he's not alone in that sense. There are other post Mormons that are really, really strong devotees of of Jesus in the New Testament. And yet they're constantly I see him on social media, you know, you know, talking about the problems of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith and things like that. And, you know, it's just it's interesting because You know, the same the same skill set that lead us to the conclusions that we receive regarding the Book of Mormon um, lead us to conclusions of the of the problematic uh, nature of a traditional model for understanding Jesus in the New Testament.
0: Yeah, I've heard it said that we think that we have our well, everybody has beliefs and we think that we have our beliefs because evidence has led us to those beliefs. And that's why we believe what we do. But I've heard it theorized that by and large, for the most part, people adopt their beliefs based upon more on feelings than Mm -hmm. evidence and facts. And once they have those feelings and those beliefs, they then cast about to find the evidence and the facts that they can use to support their beliefs. Sure. Oh, we all do that. We all do that. And that
1: um, is one of the things that you learn to try and overcome as a critical reader of sacred text um that's the you you try to to recognize the bias that you have set it aside and a good scholar and this is the other thing going back and then you know um carrie millstein in his um responses to the robert rittner interview sometime, um, did something that he's want to do and that is uh to divide scholarship into in, scholarship into believers and non-believers, right? Remember that essay that he did where he, he said, uh, oh, you know, that um, Robert Rittner, in essence, Robert Rittner comes to the conclusions he does because he doesn't believe in Joseph Smith and I believe in him and therefore we come to different
0: conclusions on these things. You know,
1: paraphrasing, obviously, but isn't that what he said?
0: Yes, he uh, he attempted to take his position, which is he views everything through the preconception that Joseph Smith was a prophet and could translate. And that's why he goes where he goes. And then I get the sense he seeks to draw a, an equation or a similarity to the other side of the coin, which is what he says Robert Rittner does, which is Robert Rittner comes to opposite conclusions, not because that's where the evidence is or because of Robert Rittner's scholarship. It's because Robert Rittner starts off with an assumption that Joseph Smith could not translate egyptian. Yes.
1: Yeah. Precisely. You articulated that very well. And I and I remember encountering and I thought well no that's I that's not correct. It's just there's it, you know there there really are there's it, the dichotomy is not between believer and non-believer it's between good scholarship and scholarship that is 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 lacking. Um that's the that's the distinction because ultimately what a scholar believes or does not believe um, shouldn't have any bearing on her interpretation of the past or in the case might be a, a document or a text. Um, that, that is the whole purpose of, of historical criticism. It's to, it's to set aside our agenda and to try and uncover, despite our own bias and what we would like to see happening, um, what is truly happening based upon the evidence. And so a scholar constantly has to check herself in that sense, and 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 you know, I I did that throughout my dissertation, for example, and I I just had these really. It, when I first came up with the thesis, I thought, "Wow, that's a radical way of looking at these at the text, the opening chapters of Genesis." But I'm probably not right, but it's an argument that should be made, so I should pursue it, and that's kind of what I told my committee and initially, and they approved the the dissertation topic, and then. As I got into it, every time I would find more evidence to sustain that thesis, I would have to pause and say, okay, am I seeing something here because I want it to be there, or is this a legitimate observation? And you have to do that as a scholar constantly, because especially when, even if you're not trying to promote a a religious agenda, if you have kind of a new or interesting twist or take on a passage that um, might draw some, some academic interest, you have to be very careful that you're not allowing your excitement to get in the way of your of, of assessment of the evidence. That's good scholarship. And it, so it doesn't matter if that Robert Ritner does not believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. That's irrelevant. What matters is, is Robert Rittner using good critical skills to show that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian? And the answer to that is obviously yes. So it's it's it doesn't matter what the scholar believes, and I reject that dichotomy that Milstein um, puts forward of believer versus non-believer. It's 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 really not it's that's that's not an accurate reflection of what happens in terms of
0: scholarship. I think that if I were to take his analysis or his illustration to its logical conclusion, what he envisions is a bunch of different people who are scholars running around with all their preconceptions and finding the evidence that supports their preconceptions and then publishing on it. So you've got all these different positions on the same subject based upon preconceptions and there's no middle ground that scholars can ever really agree on because they are completely controlled by the preconceptions they had at the outset.
1: Yep. There's a famous statement um, that was made by a, a Bible scholar who, um, who, um, you know, speaking on this topic and, and, and the way you've described it, he said, it is true that we all have bias, but it is not true that all we have is bias. Not when it
0: comes to historical criticism and it's in our understanding of the Bible and, and how these texts developed. I've got to say that, um, I understand what you're talking about, about about getting excited about something that you see that may be a new twist and being aware of, the desire to find the evidence and make it support your new twist, right? Mm-hmm. But part of that process is being uh, a part of the scholastic and academic community and being able to bounce these ideas off of other scholars, right? Yes, precisely. Because they can give you an idea of someone who's not as thrilled with your with your new twist. <laughs> See, do they think that you got something or, do, or are they saying, no, nah, no, nah, that's, yeah. that's not right. Yeah. And that's, that's right. Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, no, yeah, You. No, no, no. I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, you're exactly right. Okay. Well, I'll always make time for you to agree with me.
1: <laughs> you, <So. laughs> know, it, you know, I know that you're exactly right. And that's, and um, you know, eh, that's part of the problem that we see with um, Book of Abraham apologetics um, is that... Um, you know when I mean, let's call it as it is. It primarily comes from you know the church's two Egyptologists at Brigham Young University, and they are Egyptologists. They are not biblical scholars. Um, sure, they're they're smart men who delve into bi- biblical scholarship and read it, but that is not their academic training. Um, unfortunately, for and it's it's not even Carey's fault. But he was hired by Brigham Young University to be a professor of ancient scripture even though he's an Egyptologist. And, um, you know, it, that makes it, it a, 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 a challenge. I mean, even at, um, it's just a challenge to be hired, to to be an expert in something when your academic training was primarily in an entirely different field of inquiry. And so a lot of times, and so it, what? On, let me backtrack and state that the apologetic work that they put forward is not just in the field of their expertise namely egyptology instead they inevitably have to as they analyze the actual text itself delve into biblical scholarship because of its you know the book the book of abraham is connected with with the bible and so they'll draw upon that and a lot of the times the scholarship that they draw upon will be quite dated um and has been shown to be problematic over the decades because scholarship is always evolving and, and refining and perfecting in viewpoints um, or they're just misconstruing something and, and not intentionally, but it's just, it's just, it's not their field. It's not their, it's, it's, it's not their fault, but that happens a lot. And so to build upon what we were saying, and just think about this the other day, you know, that you see some of these articles um, that are put in the, you know, in BYU publications that come out from these men where they're dealing with these academic issues, if in fact they were as convincing as some people might assume, then they would be put into non-BYU venues because it's not as if scholars just are prejudiced and think, oh, you know this, this came from Mormonism, this book of Abraham came from Mormonism, therefore we don't wanna to touch it. My goodness! If we could establish that the Book of Abraham was a legitimate ancient document, we would all be thrilled about that. It would be it would be the most exciting discovery of, of of all time, and we'd be so excited to glean from those those verses and and to augment our understanding of ancient Israel and the Bible and how things developed. No one would reject that offhand. We'd be just the opposite. It would be. It would be absolutely thrilling. So the fact that when these publications are put forward, that they're all internally coming through Brigham Young University or whatnot, is is, it kind of tells you that they're not going to, unfortunately, be taken seriously for various reasons by the greater academic world.
0: Right. And what I was going with was uh, that same line of idea, which was occurring to me as well, is that one of the beauty of having an academic community is being able to bounce these ideas off of your, your colleagues. But it seems that when it comes to their writings about the Book of Abraham, they take steps to not do that, to not allow their non-LDS colleagues to have any kind of uh, significant input or reaction or contribution to their theories about the Book of Abraham. And in some sense, they, they are hermetically sealed with their writings about the Book of Abraham from other non-Mormon scholars. And they take steps to not talk to non-Mormon scholars about them, as most recently illustrated by Kerry Muelstein's refusal, and apparently speaking for John Gee at this time, Kerry Mulestein's refusal to speak publicly with uh, Robert Ridner about the subject of the Book of Abraham. Mm. Yeah, And, you know, part of why they
1: do that, um, and this relates to you know, I, I, as I listened to, to Dr. Rittner and I and I, I heard him over and over again, express um, his frustration at, at the fact he even called himself at one point in your interview with him, he called himself a persona incognito. He said, you know, they they will allude to me, but they will not speak my name. I'm like, you know, Voldemort or whatever from the Harry Potter series. And he didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking.
0: Yeah,
1: you know that way. Um, you know, and and it, it it's shocking to him, and it, it, you could tell it was offensive to him, and um, and it is to anyone on the outside. But if we go back to that story that I shared about my experience at BYU, the fact this is not driven by a a, a sense to belittle or to um, be disrespectful to someone like Dr. Ritter. Um, it's driven by what that same BYU professor asked me when she asked me the question, um, well, aren't you concerned that by addressing um, Dan Vogel's scholarship and interacting him with that way that it will draw your students' attention towards his work. Um, that's why they're doing what they're doing uh, in terms of, and it, it was so strange because here poor professor Rittner's complaining about not ever being talked about. And then the first, Thing that Kerry did when he did that issued that response through I don't know what is it like, Fair Mormon or whatever it came through, you know he he said as one recent commentator you know instead of using Doctor Rittner's name and not even using his name, despite those those feelings. But the reason they do that is because they fundamentally view themselves as protectors of orthodoxy, protectors of faith, and if they publicly engage on a podcast or even like cite or or use this type of scholarship or even you know try to counter it um, too directly that Sorry. it could draw the attention of uh, believers anyway so to finish that part then um you know so in other words um they're not driven to do do something unkind they're driven because they to to protect the faith and to protect the souls of 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 their flock um, by by taking that sort of
0: a course and you know and that that's just the way it's that's the way it functions yeah i've gone on record before in prior podcasts is trying to represent the opinions or position of leaders of the church that's as boyd k packer Mm -hmm. where their goal is to keep members in the church because nothing could be more important than the salvation and exaltation of members of the church. Therefore, they must remain members of the church. Therefore, whatever will keep them members of the church is what's important, even if that means we're going to not tell them all this information that we know about church history. If that information, even though it's true, could lead them out of the church, it must be kept from them. They must not know about it. So there is that aspect And I think that's true. Unfortunately, I think what's coming to fruition is that more and more as they try and keep sealed off the members of the church from any outside information regarding uh, the church or the doctrine or the history, what they're doing is weakening the system. And it's a losing battle because of the internet, because more and more people are finding out about it, and then they are left defenseless. It's almost as if by pursuing the strategy that is continued to be pursued today, as we've talked about, even by Guy and Muhlstein, of not allowing other people to know about even Robert Rittner's name or uh, the name of my podcast, that what they're doing is they are setting up bowling pins. They're making the members and they're making them the bowling pins and they're setting them up so that ultimately, sooner or later, and probably sooner in more cases than others, they're going to get knocked over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, it happens. It happens over and over again,
1: right? And it's a, it's, you know, it's it 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 doesn't have to be that way. That's that's why I wanted to do what I was doing. I was hoping that it that um a different course that the church leadership could take a different course. But in the end, it's not it's not my arc to steady, right? No, it's not your arc to steady, is it? No, no, and certainly not
0: anymore. So um, yeah, yeah, it's a challenge. But that's why I say it is so regrettable is that you're coming in there with an actual uh, solution to the problem that's being created by the internet and easy access to information. You've got it, you have both ends of the bridge. You've got one letter from uh, Bill Hamlin and another letter from David Wright. You understand the stuff. You've got information that you can give to LDS students to help them with these issues, which they are inevitably going to encounter. And yet the old playbook comes out, which is, we just don't want them to know about it. Therefore, we don't want you to introduce it to them, even though it could be helpful to them. We'll just keep them in blissful ignorance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I and one wonders, I mean, how effective that will be long-term. It seems to be a, it seems to be a, a course that's going to Cause a lot
0: of problems for the um, LDS Church as, as it moves forward, and yeah, newsflash: it's already causing lots yeah. of problems for the <laughs> LDS Church, and has been for at least ten years, if not yeah. now. Yeah. Oh my gosh! It's like Cooper says to the mayor of Amity and Jaws: "I think you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass." Yep, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah. and it, you
1: know, um. I, who knows what the future holds for that? I, I again, you know, my issues, um, were or were, fundam- were fundamentally social ones. I, I mean, I remember, um, I remember watching the movie, uh, Selma. Um, and there's, the, if, if you've seen that film, I'm sorry, I have not, I got to okay. see it. It's fantastic. And then and there's this really powerful scene where Dr. Martin Luther King is, um, it's on the second March across the bridge and, and uh there's so much threat and and anxiety in the air, and he makes a public statement calling upon all people, regardless of their faith, if they believe in human rights, to come join um, his people on the march over the bridge and and uh, It's this powerful scene then when you see Jewish rabbis and Catholic nuns and evangelical ministers um coming and joining. Um, they're all white, of course, and they join the African American protest. and And I remember sitting there watching it. And at first, I was just so touched, and, and and it was such a moving scene. And then I became very sad, and I thought, "Well, where are my people?" And and then I, of course, recognized why my people weren't there. Um, you know, we were dealing with addresses like the one I cited for marky e. Peterson, and of course, others from uh, Ezra Taft Benson on linking communism with the civil rights movement, and. Uh, I just felt so bad, and then I and then I took my family to the uh, BYU art exhibit. I, after my experience at BYU, I, I, I tried to avoid that campus as much as possible. It was it was too painful to be there. But I took my family to the um, Norman Rockwell exhibit that was there several years back, and um, a lot of the exhibit focused upon his paintings that he had done for the civil rights movement. And it the um, presentation began with this wonderful address by the president of Brigham Young University, praising Rockwell for his contributions to the civil rights movement. And I sat there thinking, my goodness, you know, at the time that that Rockwell was actually doing this great work, a president of Brigham Young University would not have been allowed to stand up and make those statements. And it was just those two points, RFM, that really hit home for me that I, as I was tra- starting to figure out what am I was going to do with my life and my my career, that um, I just sat and I realized, you know what, I will never allow um, a religious authority figure to stand in the way of my commitment to human rights and what I know to be true for the advancement of society, regardless of their position. I will never... Allowed, I will never do that. And so that was um that was a big turning point for me. So again, for me, it was like I I understand um, why and I why a lot of people, when they learn a, about the things that Dr. Rittner talked about, that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian, why they would stop and say, Oh, well, therefore, maybe wasn't a prophet, maybe I don't want to be involved in this church. I get it, I get it, I get it. That was never me. That mine was I love what Dr. Rittner is saying. Joseph Smith couldn't translate Egyptian. Let's find a way to make this still work for us spiritually. And that's 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 just who I am and what I did.
0: We are never going to be able to get to the book of Abraham. <laughs> I know this is what we were supposed to be talking about today. In today's interview, but it was so much more interesting to talk to you. I know the book of Abraham is very interesting. I went and read through it again last night. I've been doing some additional research and thinking about it, come up with some new ideas, uh, revisited some old ideas, but that's going to have to wait for another podcast. I do want to ask you a couple things now in closing because we've got 15 minutes left. And one of the things I want to ask you in closing. Is uh, about John Gee's statement that he made recently comparing evidence for the book of Abraham with evidence for the documentary hypothesis. I don't know if that was a shot directed towards you or just toward the hypothesis in general, but what he said recently at a Fair Mormon presentation, it was kind of an off the, off the cuff sort of comment that he made, but he wanted to let the members present know that there was more evidence to support the historicity of the Book of Abraham than there is for the documentary Hypothesis. Yes,
1: and um, there's not a doubt in my mind that that was a a comment that was directed towards me specifically, but also, of course, to the general audience. Because John and I have had conversations about this online and in person over the years. Um, One of our first exchanges on the topic actually happened at the Society for Biblical Literature Convention in Boston. And uh, I attended a, a session where John gave a presentation. He gave it um, a presentation criticizing the documentary hypothesis by using an analogy with Egyptian text. And so he took a couple of Egyptian texts and showed how he could splice them together and to create a unified. Um, well, I'm probably expressing this wrong. It's been a while, but anyway, in essence, Used these a single document is what he did, and divided it up into different sources, um, and and strung them together to try and show that the documentary hypothesis model that is used to understand the Pentateuch in mainstream biblical scholarship was incorrect. And I, I sat in that meeting and I listened to him, and um, I actually raised my hand and I, I and I said, "Well, I appreciate what you're saying, but remember the." The importance of the documentary hypothesis is not that it just simply uses different names for deity in different sources, but that there are parts that litter of the of the text that contradict one another, that are direct contradictions, and it's really the contradictions that are more important than anything else. And and your presentation fails to take that into consideration. Anyway, that's, anyway, I made that point, and it probably didn't go over very well with him at the time, but uh, um. That was our first exchange on that. And then that later um, continued um, when I was blogging and and it, he has his own blog and he would say something about it and we wouldn't, and then I would talk about the Documentary Prophecies. And a similar thing happened with Bill Hamblin, um, exchanges going back and forth like this. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sure, I was there when he said it, so um at the fair conference. So I remember that moment. Um, well, and, and I suspect I, 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 if it wasn't direct to me personally, it certainly, he had me and my work in mind, at, at least to some extent. What um, do you
0: think? What do you think of his observation?
1: It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's ridiculous because what he was really talking about, and he kind of does the same thing in the recent book that he did on the book of Abraham. I he critiques the documentary hypothesis and shows that he fundamentally doesn't understand it. Um, and, um, he usually will will express it in terms of of archaeological evidence there's more archaeological evidence well the documentary hypothesis is not an archaeological argument it is a it is a literary argument that is based upon a critical reading of the doublets and inconsistencies that are found all throughout the pentateuch so um to say that there's not any archaeological evidence for the documentary hypothesis, well, of course not. It's not an archaeological, it's not an archaeological argument. Um, but that's not to say that since, since we refer to it as a hypothesis or a theory, it's it's used scientifically in the same way that evolution is called the theory of evolution. But that doesn't mean that it's just speculation. My goodness, I mean, scholars have been analyzing the Bible according to the principles of the documentary hypothesis for 200 years. And it is still agreed upon by virtually every biblical scholar um, that uh, mean it's certainly by every mainstream scholar that has ever come out of the academy for 200 years. So that tells you it's not just a hypothesis or a theory that lacks evidence. Um, now, I need to, to preface that and state that there are different documentary models that scholars adhere to um so there is debate that is even happening to this day as to how many of these sources for example that are in genesis how many of them are actual documents that can that are almost entirely preserved inside the book of genesis versus how many of them are editorial insertions or just simply supplements but um, that's still, in essence, the documentary hypothesis. In fact, I actually published a very small but quick um, assessment of that in the Bi- in Biblical Archaeology Review a couple of years back, where I, I told people that the documentary hypothesis is not dead, even though a lot of conservative evangelical um, commentators try to represent it as such, and even now, of course, within Mormonism, um, because there are differences of opinion. It's not... Uh, what sources are documents and text versus what are supplements doesn't mean that we're not using the documentary hypothesis everybody's using the documentary hypothesis it's just there's debate as to how the sources fit together and and the, other than that it's all you know everybody has the same understanding that the reality is is that the book of genesis which is directly relevant to the book of abraham Um, Is composed of separate historical sources that have been amalgamated or put together by a redactor or an editor Into the present form that we have it in the book of Genesis. Everyone agrees that that's the case. It's just the evidence is that clear
0: Yeah, I feel like dr. Gee is talking about different forms of evidence and basically saying that the form of evidence that he's talking about uh, archaeologically or in other texts is really evidence and that the evidence that supports the documentary hypothesis, well, that's not really evidence at all. Yeah. So he can say, and I I think the force of his argument, uh, which I think is not very forceful, but the the point of the argument is, look, the documentary hypothesis is accepted by everybody. Okay. Mm -hmm. It is something that a lot of people accept and there's more evidence for the book of Abraham than for the documentary hypothesis. Therefore, the book of Abraham is even more corroborated as being true than is the documentary hypothesis. Yes. And I and I am aware of the
1: evidence that he has put out. And we can talk about that in our next, um, I think we'll talk about at least a lot of it, if not all of it in, in the next uh, podcast that we do. And suffice it to say that, I disagree. I disagree with the, what he views as evidence, whether it's holy shem or the structure of covenants that he identifies and connects with Abraham's day, or um, the genre of autobiography in at the time of Abraham. What he has presented that pertains to biblical scholarship in terms of evidence is is very problematic and and and, 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 and not legitimate. And where I the only. The only evidence that i see that is legitimate for the argument of ancient authenticity to the book of abraham is um is in the presentation of gods in the plural uh in creation and then this concept of a a council of divinities um that could be linked with abraham chapter three i and that's a hit that is a hit for the book of abraham based upon what we know about ancient israelite beliefs and biblical text today it needs to be identified as such um but the problem with and but that's the only one the, everything else that i that that's been presented to me is um is 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 it's just it, i'll just use the term ridiculous it's just i we can show how problematic it is but um But that one's legitimate. But what needs to be stated is the significance of anachronisms, meaning something that is out of historical time, place, and setting. And I like to use the analogy of, um, William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. Well, imagine that if that play, that play was discovered, um, recently by scholars. And some people were arguing that Julius Caesar was produced during the time period of the Roman Empire. And they started to argue that there are hits. There are things that the play gets right that we can show to be correct through contemporary documents. The argument would still not be legitimate that the play was produced during that time period because of the anachronisms. So for example, Gosh, what is it? In the first scene or so, Brutus um, tells Cassius to to tell him the time of the day, and there's a reference to a clock and the, the way the hands of the clock move. Well, that tells you that that document could not have been produced in Roman time period because they didn't have clocks. There's a reference in the play to the turning of the page of the book, and the book is a medieval creation. They didn't have books back then in Roman time period. So even though there might be some connections between the play and the ancient world, The connections do not override the anachronisms, and the anachronisms still have to be addressed because there's no way that they could be included in that document unless it is a later source. And that's what we see with the book of Abraham, because the truth is, from the very opening verse, where we identify Abraham as coming from Ur of the Chaldees, that is out of time period historically with Abraham, and it's not something he ever could have done. And then the anachronisms just continue. So, you know, even if John was correct on his assessment of covenants, on his assessment of autobiographies in the first century, on his assessment of Holy Shem and all of these other things that uh, have been presented, which he's not. But even if he was correct on those, it still wouldn't negate the anachronisms that show us that this is a
0: 19th century document produced by the prophet Joseph Smith. Right. And we're going to get into that. Fast and furious when it comes to the second podcast, which I hope we can get to recording next week. By the way, a couple of things that I want to say first off about evidence and this idea of privileging certain kinds of evidence. This is evidence that supports my position. The other evidence that supports your position. Well, that's not really evidence. This is something that I deal with on a regular basis as a criminal defense attorney, I will have people calling me and this happens, this is one of the most frequent conversations I have with people on the phone who are charged with a crime. And they, maybe they're charged with sexual assault or something like that. And they will tell me, they will say, yeah, I'm charged with sexually assaulting this lady over here. And they say, but there's no evidence. There's no evidence that I did that. And I say, well, does she say that you sexually assaulted her? Yeah. And then I have to tell them "Uh, that's evidence. Mm hmm. Yeah. So I'm hearing the same kind of thing that John G is doing with uh, his his privileging certain evidence as evidence and evidence over here for the documentary hypothesis. Well, that's not yeah. evidence, by the way. Now, in closing, I'm in a fit of brilliance. I'm going to go back to my apologetic days, OK, and talk about this anachronism that you have found in. I almost said the book of Julius Caesar, but the play, <laughs> the play Julius Caesar. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to show why that anachronism actually proves that it's true. Okay. It's actually. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. And that it was written by a prophet of God. Okay. This is going to be totally, I'm going full John Gee mode here. Okay. okay. Because you said that it was Brutus who talked to Cassius to tell him what time it is. And Cassius refers to a clock. Mm-hmm. Well, Cassius, the name is remarkably Similar, you must agree to the name Cassio, which is a famous producer of timepieces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is perfect. That is—it's just that's what
1: happens. Uh-huh. Isn't that exactly what they yeah, do? It's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. <laughs> and and you and I know it because we've spent much of our adult lifetimes reading and taking seriously these arguments.
0: It's a perfect description. Yes. And if that happens in the book of Abraham with Ulishem, right? For mm-hmm. an example, well, all of a sudden on at first blush, wow, that's amazing. That's a connection. How could Joseph Smith have possibly known that? But I suppose if you take it one step further and see the same thing happening in Julius Caesar, you go, Well, wait a second. That doesn't mean anything. That's just yeah. a coincidence for crying out loud. <laughs> well, yeah. And since you
1: brought it up, we gotta finish this one. We got it. okay. The the um, the, okay, the you know the okay now I'm starting to mix up the words, but the book of Abraham term Oli Shim right is the is the place name in chapter one of the book of Abraham that has been identified by uh, well it was first identified by John Lundquist actually in the 1980s 1985 yeah with the, the book of Abraham and then John he has talked about it and he and Carrie insisted that it get into the church's essay. Um, on it, and it's um, and it's it's my understanding based upon what you've said, not anything that I've I've read that John has recently kind of backed off of that a little bit.
0: I play the tape, yeah, but okay. he's definitely backed off. He's backed off of it in the sense that I still think he thinks that Uli Sum, which appears in an inscription from 2250 BCE, which is like 400 or so years before he believes Abraham lived, because he's got him nailed down to 1800 BCE. But but I think he still believes that in principle but any of the handful of places that modern day scholars have identified as potential sites for Uli Sum, he has said, nah, he doesn't think that any of those are right. I okay. think he thinks there's still an Uli Sum out there waiting to be discovered. To be discovered. I get it. Yeah. But it's gotta be okay. in the correct location for him. Well, you know,
1: I, I I'd read those articles before and it may never really interest me all that much. And so finally for, I just went maybe two weeks ago and I looked at the exact actual cuneiform, signs from the text that they're that lundquist first was identifying that from and um you know it is it's fascinating to me because if you break it down so the book of abraham word is is um only Oli, oh gosh Oli, i'm getting all confused Oli okay Shem. book
0: of abraham is olisham o-l-i-s-h-e-m
1: l-o-l-i-s-h-e-m exactly well and then the cuneiform tablet actually mentions a place called Ulisum, okay, as the nominative form of that. Well, the U and the O—the reason why they're connecting it—it seems strange to to non-Semiticists, but they're right. The, there is not—it's in Akkadian and in Akkadian, the language of ancient Babylon and Assyria—we don't have um, we don't have O's like that. So the U and the O's are interchangeable, so that's not a problem. But then you're left with the syllable Li. And then you're left with um, an S um, that is actually not an S-H sound, um, but an, an, an S-I sound. seem, which is the, the genitive form of that. And, and so my point being is that when you actually break it down, all of the, the only thing that those two words share in common is literally the syllable li. That is it. It's not even using the correct S, but interesting enough, in some apologetic writings, that S will be transliterated as an S-H sound so that it will connect more directly with Olishum from the, the, from the Book of Abraham. No, sorry, Holy Shem from the Book of Abraham. So my point being is that that's the link. That's the link that, that, that we're going to identify, is that there's, it, it shares literally one consonant together. I, to me, that's just not a strong, compelling argument to say that, oh, Joseph Smith got this place name correct. I, I, I don't know if I've articulated that well enough. It's a little bit linguistically complicated, but my point being is that it's exactly what you're talking about and what you did with
0: Cassius and the, and the clock. And that's what's happening, and it's why it's, it shouldn't be taken seriously, unfortunately. Yeah, we will get into all this in more detail. And I agree with you. It seems to me after a lot of examination and a lot of hours talking with Robert Rittner is that um, it seems that the the case for the historicity of the book of Abraham put forward by uh, John Gee and Kerry Muhlstein and others um, consists of a small handful of very fragile proofs.
1: Yes, fragile proofs that ignore the anachronisms
0: dismiss them. Yes. There's an awful lot that they don't talk about while they're focusing on this small set. And and the reason I reached out to you with
1: excitement after this is because um you know what Robert Rittner did and showed was from an Egyptological perspective, issues concerning the so-called translation of the book of Abraham. Um where where my studies come into place into places with the actual text itself, um and, and, you know, who was Abraham? Was he really a historical person? And um, what's the evidence for that or against that? Um, what are the biblical sources that are being used or found all throughout the book of Abraham? What does that tell us about the development of the text? What about the anachronisms that are there re- that reflect 19th century uh, biblical viewpoints that we can pull out and extract? Um, that's where my studies... Uh, are a bit different than him, but augment what you were doing. And I thought that'd be fun to just get on and share. I'm excited about it. And um, it, it'd be fun to, to help people be aware of that. Not in the sense of, a, of attacking. Uh, here's the truth. RFM. I, I say this all the time. I was talking to my wife about it this morning before we began. I said, you know, I, I love these texts. I love the book of Abraham. I love the book of Mormon. And and she asked me why she's like, why? Cause she, she's just not in the same place. And I said, I said, I love it because they're so damn interesting. And, and I've devoted so many years to understanding how they were created and how they are contextualized historically, you will just walk away from that. It's still, you know, I don't, I love these texts. I don't love them the same way that I used to at one point in my life. Um, but I still care for them. I I'd say I love them every bit as much as some, as John and Carrie do, um, but we just read them very, very differently. And, 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 and I'm, I, I enjoy, I love showing people um, what these texts look like when you analyze them through the lens of biblical scholarship. And in fact, um, yeah, I've, that's one of the things I, I do hope to accomplish now that I'm returning is I'd like to do a book on the book of
0: Abraham from that angle and produce that for an audience. That would be awesome. I know from exchanges we've had in the past couple of weeks in preparation for that, that you are reviewing things and new ideas are coming to you even as recently as last night.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So oh. it's fun and I'm excited and I'm, I'm I'm really grateful for the work that you've been doing on this and um, it's just been so fantastic and I'm grateful for it you know, the chance to share in this, in this wonderful venue. In fact, I, as you know, I, we, you know, most of my family members and friends are attorneys for one or whatever every reason I'm drawn towards you people. And, 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 um, and they all, they all just adore your podcast. You guys all have a specific type of mind for breaking down arguments and looking critically at evidence and then presenting it in a way that a jury or a general audience could
0: understand. And, uh,
1: and so I love what you're doing. Thank you. And appreciate a chance to share.
0: You are so welcome. As soon as we're done here or a little bit later, we will get together. We will schedule, hopefully, another three hours, and we'll be able to go into the book of Abraham itself. Not only talking about the different apologetics that are used to support the historicity of the book of Abraham and how they do or don't measure up, but also interesting and fascinating insights that you have about applying your tools from biblical criticism and the documentary hypothesis to the text of the book of Abraham and seeing how that allows us to see things that we would not otherwise see. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'll give my outro now, which is, oh, by the way, David, sorry, it's been three hours. You were up early and uh, i got to ask you a question. Yeah. What would you like for the outro song to be? Oh, I, 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 oh. I can let you think about that for a while. Nothing came to me. Maybe, I mean, do you have a recording from your band that we could use? Yeah, we could do that. I could send you something. That would be awesome. We'll use that, okay? Okay. And that'll be a big promo. And it's the uh, Dead Cowboys, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's so fun. We've gone back. And so one of the things that, you know, that happened to
1: me in my life is that um, I grew up um, playing guitar and writing these little songs when I was a teenager and obsessed with rock and roll. And then, of course, family graduate studies and everything else um, got in the way of that and um, when um, my wife and I disengaged from from the church and and started our our new journey we started again going to um, clubs and bars and hearing local music musicians play and one day she actually turned to me and said you you used to love doing that you were so passionate about it you should do that again you and I'm like you're right I should so I went and bought a guitar and um, And, and we, I created a band and we started playing, um, these old songs that I'd written, most of which had been written like when I was 16 or 17 years old. And of all things, Brian Hoglid became our lead guitarist initially. So (laughs) I don't know know this, but Brian was, who is my dear friend and he became lead guitarist and we had a lot of fun. And then, you know, his, his kind of life got in the way of, of things and I moved. And so anyway, the band members have changed, but, um, we do go out. We we recorded that initial album of original songs that I'd written, and um, and now go out and play locally in clubs. And it's just it's just it's so much fun. It's just to be to be back to something in my life that I had loved so passionately and then
0: had given up. So it's mm-hmm. been it's been a great journey. Well, pick your favorite song. Send it to me. We will okay. close with that song and until next time by the way there's going to have to be a part 2 to this but until next time david bakovoy this is radio free mormon signing off the air i've been here
1: in the city, I know, for much too long when all they play out, here are Where did looking cold? Let's go! To you meant-
0: they were new. Need-